Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks. And this is Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And we have got a, what I think is a very good episode for any of uh, our listeners out there or watchers who grew up playing the AVP games of the early 2000s and of Aliens vs. Predator Extinction in particular. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, this is probably one of my uh, favorite interviews we've ever done on here for the podcast. And we're speaking to three people who worked on the game, the lead designer Jason Huff, lead artist Brian Collins, and producer Mike Arkin. And these were just great guys. And it was a really fun conversation, uh, hearing more about the behind the scenes of the challenges and uh, the fun times as well, uh, making this game that we enjoyed when we were growing up, Aaron. Indeed. It was it was a fun one to put together, to be honest. And we got oh, these three guys together on the internet and they had a load of fun, basically. It was, it was great. We didn't even have to really shepherd them for much of this. So it was just great to sit and have a conversation with these guys, just reminiscing about a very different era of video game development and the experiences that they had. Like Adam said, you know, the fun they had and the challenges they had. And I'm so glad I got to be able to get this together for the game's 20th anniversary. Uh, Something, you know, me and you, Adam, we mention a lot is how little documented the behind the scenes of games are. You know, the AVP games in particular, but the, the gaming industry in general doesn't have that much of a behind the scenes kind of look to the the games you get art books sometimes maybe the bigger games but to be able to do these sort of oral histories of these entries that we we played and we loved it was uh, fantastic yeah really enjoyed this one hopefully everybody else out there listen uh, who is about to listen will obviously this is um, we're recording this intro after the fact as we sometimes do with the interviews so we already know we had fun doing it but hopefully everybody else does so uh, anything else to say, Adam, or should we just let the gentleman entertain us? Yeah, let's get on to the interview. Hope you all enjoy. First of all, thank you everybody for uh, joining us and taking the time to talk to me and Adam about Alien versus Aliens, sorry, versus Predator Extinction for its big 2-0 anniversary. Woo. Wow, <laughs> for a start. <laughs> I was I was sort of uh, I think I was telling Jason before we started recording uh, or it might have been Brian sorry. You know, Adam and I like to do these things with folks such as yourselves, you know, developers because the games aren't as documented as the films are and quite frankly we think that's a little bit of a crime to the franchise's history because there is a lot well and to the, you know, in the industry in general, you know, you guys have as much stories to tell as people on a film set do so yeah, thank you for for digging into this one with us. Before we do start talking AVP though, can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself outside of Alien and Predator? You know, who is who is Brian Collins, who is Mike Arkin, and who is Jason Hoff, and what do they do? Brian, we'll start with you since you're the, the one on our row. Nice. Uh, well, I'm Brian. 20 years ago, I was an artist on AVP at Zono. These days, I'm a software engineer at Google doing augmented and virtual reality. And I think that's all the interesting bits. <laughs> so a bit of a career change there then from yeah. uh, game development to, to Google. In the AR VR space, it's less of a shift than you might think. Yeah, okay. They're very game-like spaces. So mm. 
it's actually more of the same stuff. I just do very boring stuff now instead of very interesting <laughs> stuff like you do for games. So instead of aliens, I'm making Gmail buttons. <laughs> <laughs> same basic stuff, though. You That's know. that versatility we were talking yeah. about. Before we yeah. Oh, brilliant. Go, go on, Jason. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm Jason Huff. I was a designer at Zono, although I started there as sort of an artist slash maybe technical artist might be a better term these days. Since then, I, I did work in the uh, mobile industry for a little while doing app store type stuff at Qualcomm. While I was doing that, I, my hobby sort of became writing and uh, I managed to get a novel sold to an agent or picked up by an agent and sold to a publisher and ended up switching careers to become a full-time author. So that's what I'm doing these days. I know you've written some video game books as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. More recently, I I did a few, I did two Gears of War books. Um, I co-wrote a Mass Effect book and I've done some Star Wars uh, short story work. Any interest in uh, joining the AVP authors? Interestingly, the opportunity came up a few years ago, but I was in the middle of another project and couldn't do it. So they went with um, a friend of mine, Scott Sigler. Oh. Oh. Have you read it? I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I need to. Oh, Jason, you need to. That is is one of the best alien books. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that because he was was super excited when uh, they sort of had to pivot and, and, you know, invite him to do it. Um, I wish I could have could have done it, but it's something that he had wanted to do for many, many years. So he was super, super excited. It's nice to hear that it turned out well. Maybe the chance will come again then. Yeah, maybe. You never know. It's the same publisher who did my Gears of War and Mass Effect stuff. So Titan, yeah. Yeah. Mike, last but not least. Maybe least. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike. I was the producer at Zono. In fairness, I came on to AVP in the middle towards the end friends with one of the owners of Zono. And we had lunch one day and he said, why don't you come help us out? I was like on vacation between jobs. And I started doing biz dev, but you know, I kept looking at AVP and saying, hey, I think you guys maybe need some production help. There was no production management at all. And so I jumped in like just really, I guess, not even the middle, I guess, really just to help finish, you know, deal with some legal stuff mostly, and then help push the team over the edge, get it shipped. So there you go. Today, I run a development studio called Big Boat Interactive, and we do a little of this and a little of that. We have a uh, couple of remasters that we've done of some classic games, and I have the AVP source code and keep hoping someday I will find a way to get that game remastered and shipped on some you know modern PC, but that's a different story. That would be great to see. That is something we see crop up a lot on social media these days is... Um, I like to give our community the opportunity to like submit questions and stuff for when we do sessions like this. And one of the things that kept cropping up was when you're going to do a remaster of the game. I'm like, I'm not sure we can really ask them that one, but it's something people really do want to see. And, and people have tried to remake the game in the past as well. So, you know, there is a lot of love in, in the community for Extinction. Probably the biggest complication would be it's owned by Disney now, right? So they own the game code, they own the franchise, and they have not been friendly towards remasters at all. So I feel like that might be a a tough, you know, kind of dead end, which is unfortunate, but I have all the code. Well, so if it ever, if it ever needs to be done, we know where to send folk. If if it ever needs to be done, Brian and Jason will be the first people I call. So (laughs) definitely needs to be done. I think I have the code as well somewhere. That, see, everybody's got the code. Yeah, I, I've got it too. It's it's in the stack over here. It's like okay. one of the one of the weird DVDs on my DVD shelf, which just says AVP source code. <laughs> so I've done like a half a dozen remasters, and the, the rule is someone always has the code, you know. And 
there's one that we just started recently, which I can't say what it is, although the founder who owns the game accidentally announced it on Twitter the other day. And we're just hoping that goes away. And we spent a year and a half and we found some kid in Australia had the code. We don't know how. We didn't ask too many questions, but he gave us the code and we were very happy. So that's awesome. So one of our staple questions when we have new guests on the show, especially guests such as yourselves who have played a part in shaping the Alien and Predator franchises, is to ask about the first time you all experienced the franchises. Do you remember the first time you ever encountered the Alien or Predator? Did you see the films or was it another piece of media like the games or the comics? Well, for me, I'll start if that's all right. I I actually remember it quite vividly because uh, it was um, when the Aliens film came out and I was not old enough to see it, but I had gone to the movie theater to see something else. And at the time, this was in the mid eighties. When did the movie come out? Does anyone remember the year? I think it was 86. Well, it was in that time frame, and I, I'd gone to the theater to see something else. And I heard, I heard all these explosion sounds coming through the wall of the, of the, the theater next to the one I was in. So I, when I went out to get a snack, I just poked my head in the door to see what movie it was. And I ended up <laughs> It was it was literally in the dropship scene when I walked in when they were going on the planet and I I didn't leave I just sat down and watched it and then I stayed and watched the next showing uh, and then finally got kicked out for being uh, too young to be in there but uh, I think I ended up sneaking in to see it like something like twelve times that summer uh, and it's still one of my all time favorite films and uh, yeah so that just I then went and sought out Alien and of course Predator and all that later but. That was my first introduction to it. Yeah, when I was in elementary school, uh, this was when everything was on VHS tape and sometimes hard to get your hands on horror movies because you didn't want to go into that section in the video store because it would be mixed with other movies which you wouldn't want to be standing next to. And I had heard on the playground of, oh, there's this movie where this alien just like bursts out of the dude. Uh, Like, you got to see it. I'm like, well, I have no avenue to see this film. And so... (laughs) Someone had a VHS tape that they were just handing around to friends and we had to like sneak into the bedroom where the VHS player was and like, look, there it is, it's going to burst out of them. Oh my God, look at that. That was my first Aliens experience. I, I love all the um, the schoolyard black market kind of trading of things like that back in the day. A really quick thing, by the way, this may be worth mentioning now. Uh, Brian and I have been friends since junior high, since like 85 probably. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's how we both ended up in Zona together through that. That's awesome. I I remember, yeah, my cousin had a tape of Alien and he was like, oh, it's too scary. We can't watch it. And I think I saw like a few minutes here and there, right? Because it was like we watched it and then like the parents came and told us to turn it off or whatever. And so I just, I mean, I knew about the Alien, but like I hadn't seen the movie. And I remember I was with my dad walking down the street and he was like, let's go to a movie. And we were standing in front of the theater and it was Aliens. And I didn't know what it was. And I was like, well, there was this movie I wasn't allowed to watch. So let's go see this, you know. And I had no idea that it was Jim Cameron, like big action movie. And I just, I remember, you know, sitting in the theater, just like, what the fuck? This is awesome, you know. I mean, it's, it's like if you ask me what kind of movies I like, like this is it, right? It's like sci-fi, military, fighting the aliens, wisecracks. So I just, you know, I walked out of the theater and I was like, that's the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, <laughs> wow. I always love to hear that it makes an impact on you guys as well. While we're here to primarily talk uh, AVP Extinction, Mike, I know you used to work at Fox Interactive and had some hand in the development of AVP Classic. Uh, it'd be criminal of me not to ask you about it while we're on here and we've got you. So uh, tell us about that experience working on that game. 
Yeah. I mean, I had worked at a claim that was my first job in the industry. And, you know, I, I worked on a lot of things. I feel like there was something aliens. Alien trilogy. Yeah. But I'm trying to think like, cause that was PlayStation one. So I think maybe it was being talked about when I was at Fox. I'm sorry, when I was at Acclaim. Then I left Acclaim, I went to Sony. And then, so about a year after I left Acclaim, I ended up at Fox. So it must have been that that Alien Trilogy was was being talked about when I was there. And I got there and it was a license deal. So we weren't really involved, but we were also basically like handling reviewing of all the licensed product, right? Just for like video gameness. And because I had gotten, I had like a bad relationship with Acclaim, when they came for like the final approval of Alien Trilogy, they said, well, why don't you take care of this? you know, like have a little fun, you know? And so I went into the room and like, basically, you know, I was like, no, you can't ship this. It's awful. I have to thank whoever that was for letting me have that, you know, tiny, tiny iota revenge. But after that shipped, I was like, you know, I really like these aliens games. Like, this is kind of fun. I want to do something, you know, like with AVP because we had this Jaguar game we we're playing. We we're like, this Jaguar game is awesome. And the Jaguar game, the thing that made it so cool was that they built models of all the aliens and they photographed them from all the different angles and made, you know, sprites. And so even though it was kind of janky, that they looked really good because they were they were models instead of hand painted. And so I found those guys. It was Rebellion in the UK. And I was like, hey, look, we want to do another AVP game. You know, can you just basically do like what you did before and, and do that on PlayStation? And they were like, yeah, cool. And it was like a really, really tough project. Like they were really small. It was like five or six people on the team. And the model thing kind of just wasn't really working on PlayStation. And design wise, like the design wasn't really there. And they didn't have like, they just didn't have like a great plan. And luckily for me, I went to go work at Activision on Battlezone. And as I was leaving, I handed the project off to a guy named Dave Stalker, who is, comes back to the story a few years later. And I said to Dave, you know, you're a designer. This game really needs a lot of design help. So it turns out after I left, he basically spent like a year and a half at Rebellion working with them on the design of the game. And it turned out to be, you know, a great game. Oh, and like five minutes after I left, they were like, hey, we really don't want to do this the model thing can we just make 3d models of everything and dave was like yeah sure and they blamed me for that they were like oh we asked him and he wouldn't let us do it i don't remember if that happened or not <laughs> probably but i don't remember and at the time i was at fox we kept saying hey it'd be really cool to do like an avp you know rts and we talk about it at lunch all the time so a couple of years later i was talking to novak who's one of the founders of zono and he's like yeah we're doing this avp rts and i was like ah that was a great idea i'm glad they finally did that you know so I guess that's my history. So you actually kicked off Rebellion making Classic? Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't called Classic. It was just... AVP, you know, AVP. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, Classic was like the re-release. But yeah, yeah, it was it was basically my idea to do. I mean, I, I can't say... I mean, they were the original developer of, of AVP, right? Because they made the mm -hmm. Jaguar game. And that really was... You know, I say it was my idea. My idea was just, let's hire those guys to do the thing they did already. You, you kicked off another era of, of AVP gaming, should we say, then? Yeah. And so, you know, you, you're from England. So, you know, I spent a lot of time at Rebellion in Oxford, mm -hmm. which is like this lovely little town. And I used to walk from the train station to the office. It was like, you know, two mile walk. And I made the mistake one time of going like in February. <laughs> and, you know, Fox was in LA. So, you know, I didn't have warm clothes. Right. So I show up in England and I'm like, what's this? What's this white stuff? <laughs> like, what's happening? For the record, I believe I almost died walking from the train station to the office. You know, I got there and I was like, uh, turn on the fire. <laughs> it is a little bit cold over here. I mean, that that was like Rebellion Classic. 
right? I mean, that was the original rebellion. You know, Jason and Chris, the owners, they were they were on the team making AVP, right? They were day to day. Today, those guys are. Chris runs the company. Jason's off making movies and things like that. So it was a magical time. I bet. Yeah, I, I, I visited once when they were doing 2010, and then that was a great experience. Actually, being in, you know with those guys who had done the Jaguar and the classic version. You know, the the lead designer on 2010 had come on and done some QA at the end of Classic as well. So you know, they they were all a bit a bit of a legacy going along, all of them, which was great. There was a PS1 version in development that was dropped, and they just went with PC for that one, right? Yeah, it was PC, PlayStation, and Saturn. So PlayStation was kind of like the lead skew around the time that I left. And, you know, I think what my understanding, what had happened was, you know, like I said, development was a little troublesome. I don't think it was troublesome like that they couldn't handle it. I think it was just they bit off more than they could chew, right? It was the amount of stuff they were trying to put into the game, I think, was more than a PlayStation could handle. And so I think after I left, they just pragmatically said, you know, let's just drop this and stick with PC that can handle so much more, you know, more memory, more power. There is some screenshots of of the PS1 version knocking around online somewhere as well. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think at the time that I was there, like I would only play PlayStation was the what they delivered us. So how did you all find yourselves working at Zono and then part of the development of AVP Extinction? You had mentioned, Jason, Brian, you, you two are, are friends and went into Zono together, but give us a little more history about how this all kind of initially came together. Yeah, I was actually in college in San Diego and I was graduating and then Jason and I were friends, so we'd hang out all the time. He's like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm doing artwork for this video game developer up in Orange County. You want you want a job? And I said, like, yeah. <laughs> and then this is like very early in game development days. So there was no qualifications. It was just like, can you move a mouse? <laughs> yeah, I, I have some experience on mice. And, and so the next thing you know, we're making a started with Sega Saturn game. And then we made a PC game called Metal Fatigue. I don't know if you guys have played this game. This is the, the predecessor to AVP Extinction. Yeah, I haven't played it, but I looked it up you know, in, in prep for our retrospective episode. And yeah, visually, it looked really similar to Extinction. Yeah, it had a lot of ties together. Like, it, it, AVP was built off the same engine, used the same, like... A lot of the same, same game behaviors and things yeah. like that. Yeah, so I was actually in a... Um, I was really into 3D animation and all that kind of stuff back then. And I was taking a class at University of California at San Diego... At one point, I was helping out the instructor with a computer issue. They were using all these big silicon graphics machines, and she didn't really understand like the operating system part. But I was also like very techy, and uh, so we got to talking, and it turned out she was friends with Ed Zobrist, who was one of the co-owners of Zono, and uh, they were looking for they were kind of looking for someone who could come in and help out with art, but also help out with like getting their network set up. They had just started this office and were having a lot of issues with computers and that sort of thing. So she got me and Ed talking and um, and they essentially hired me as sort of a dual title, like artist slash um, network engineer type person. I think it became like I was basically responsible for, well, not responsible, that might not be the right word, but I was much more into like the technical side of 3D animation art, like getting the models right and, and all the low poly stuff and everything. Whereas we had another artist there named Michael Gates. I think I'm getting his name right. Is that right? Yeah, Michael Gates? Okay. That's right. Who was much more just pure artist, but didn't really, he wasn't into like the software and everything. I think he would almost have preferred to do everything by hand at the time. So we were working on a game called Mr. Bones at the time when I started there, which is a Sega Saturn game. 
you know, Ed and Novak, the two owners, you know, were talking about hiring another artist. So I recommended they talk to Brian. It was an interesting, uh, Getting in the interview and everything, like, uh, as Brian mentioned, it was kind of the Wild West back then. If I recall correctly, his portfolio that he sent was mainly like these pizza ads that he had drawn for some pizza place he worked at at the time. Yeah, I worked at a pizza company at, at the campus of San Diego State drawing their comic strip. Yeah. And so my portfolio was like dumb comic strip characters I had drawn. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess you can breathe, you can operate a mouse, and you can draw dumb comic strip characters. You're hired. <laughs> Uh, but it all worked out. But that's how we, we ended up at Zono, yeah. And Mike, I guess you've already kind of uh, spoke about that one, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, the the official Zono story was, you know, it was like I had worked at Crave for a while and I had a summer, the summer of severance, as I called it, where, you know, Crave had laid everyone off and, the, and I went to the beach every day. And I had lunch with Novak, who was the other co-founder. And yeah, he just said, can you help us do BizDev? And I said, sure. Like, you know, I worked at publishers for years and signed deals. So this is like the same thing. It's just asking people for money instead of giving them money. Like, how hard could it be? That's a joke. It was actually very hard. And after like a month of doing pitching and stuff, I said, hey, if AVP doesn't get finished, I don't have a team for the stuff that I'm pitching. So like AVP needs to get finished. And what I see is it's never going to get finished. And I think you guys should let me help. And Novak was like, absolutely. Like, start tomorrow. And the other co-owner was like, no. We want you to focus on pitching stuff. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll focus on pitching stuff. But I really wanted to help out with AVP, particularly since the client was Fox and I knew the guys, you know, it was like my old buddies. And a couple of weeks went by and one day, like, I don't know, 8 a.m. I get a call and the guy says, I'm going in today. I'm going to fire everyone. And we're done. Fox didn't pay us. We don't have any money. Like, you know, fuck this. I hate this job. And I said, well, well, how can I help? Like, cause why are you calling me? And he goes like, can you just, can you help? Can you just like take over, you know? And I said, okay, like, you know, I'll come in, right? Cause it was, it was like a 40 minute drive. So I had to like actually get dressed and stuff. Cause I was, you know, I didn't work there. So I just, I'd go in like once a week or something. And I went down and I, and I sat with them and I said, look, like, you know, you've got a problem with Fox. There's a contract is long over budget. And there's someone was suing. I think that was the the event that it happened was someone was suing them for money. They didn't pay the agent. They owe the agent 5% for like the last two years. So I said, okay, well, I got to sell this thing with Fox. I got to sell this thing with the agent. I need to get you more money to finish the game. And then I'll take over as producer and help get the game done. But you can't fire everybody, right? You just got to like hang on for like another month or something. And he was like, oh, okay, okay. You know, he kind of calmed down at that point, right? And so I said, my title is producer and I'm going to get you the money to pay me. So I went to Fox and I, oh, I went to the agent and I said, we'll pay you half. And they said, okay, sure. So that was like five minutes. And that was done. Then I went to Fox and I sat with them. I made a budget, padded the budget out. Like we had people in the budget that like had already quit or whatever. And I was just like, we need six artists and we need this. And cause that's how you did it back then, right? Like any hope of, you know, covering when you were late, you had to do by like throwing in extra people. And they said, okay, we're going to approve the extra. It was like $300,000, but we're not going to approve line 27. And I was like, what's line 27? And they're like, oh, that's your salary. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like that's kind of weird. But I'm the guy that's come in here, reorganized the project. Like I've settled this legal thing. I just, we just need a little money to finish. They're like, yeah, no, we're not paying for you. So I was like, it's okay. Cause when I put in the real numbers, it still worked out. Right. So we signed this amendment, but when the amendment came, they had accidentally forgot to remove line 27 and they had put it back in by accident. And the producer on the Fox side 
was a buddy of mine and he told me, he goes, yeah, when the final contract draft came, I pointed that out. But the guy was so embarrassed that they had forgotten to remove it that he left it in because he knew that he had screwed up and like, he's just like, okay, just leave it in, whatever. So yeah. So at that point, and I had said to them like, well, I want to be, uh, I want to be a partner. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just be an employee. So they said, ship AVP and we'll give you a third of the company. And so we shipped AVP and I ended up, you know, one of the three owners of the company. And I think about a year and a half later, the two of them left and I ended up owning the whole thing. So, and the rest is, is history. I never did get my cut of that line 27 that we talked about. <laughs> no, that line 27 was my salary. Yeah. Where, where's my piece? You were supposed, yeah, we're supposed to get a portion of that. No, you got, <laughs> you got a job for like three years after that. You were going to get fired that day, by the way. I left out. The, I didn't say the name of that person, but Brian and Jason have completely undersold themselves, right? <laughs> you know, there were like three or four people at Zono that really made the the team special. And Brian, forget about the pizza thing. Brian was one of the most versatile artists that I'd ever worked with. He did the 2D when we did games. You know, we did like five or six games after AVP. He did all the 2D bits, which was all really good. He did all the 3D. He would do characters. He would animate them. I mean, today in video gaming, this is like six different people. I also did the voiceovers. And well, I was getting to that. I was getting to that. Yeah, because I, in my head, when I was thinking that, Brian, I was thinking of this game we did called Riot Police, where you were the Riot Police, and you go in with, with sticks and start beating the protesters. And Brian's voices were phenomenal. There's a helicopter guy that comes in. His name is Slappy Johnson. And I don't know if that's funny in British, but in... <laughs> English, it is a little funny. And so Brian did these, you know, fantastic voices. And I was so sad when Brian left because he really, you know, to have someone as versatile on your team is really a, a massive asset. And Jason, I, I apologize. You were good too. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah. And I should probably mention uh, for two, two things. Um, one, just for some context, like Zona was a pretty small company, at least by today's game company standards. Maybe at the time it wasn't that different, but it was maybe between like 10 and 20 people at any given time. So it wasn't a huge studio. And so a lot of us, uh, Brian and myself, especially, we did a lot of stuff. We wore a lot of hats. We probably dabbled in some code now and then. We definitely did, like Brian did voices. We would record a lot of the sound effects for things in our, our lead engineer, Jeff's uh, garage. It was, it was, and we worked, you know, nights and weekends all the time, not because they were asking us to, but just because it was like our life back then. We made a game called Battle for Troy, which was like about the uh, RTS about the Trojan War. And I did all the voices for it. And in the review, it said, this game is the worst. <laughs> the voice acting has the cultural sensitivity of a 1940s Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> Can we find that? Let's try to find that review. By the way, the game was called, the movie Troy had just come out. And THQ came to us and said, we want to do a Trojan War game. And we get the box and it says the battle for in the smallest letters. And then half the box is the word Troy, <laughs> right? And, and then the movie after that, the, sorry, the game we did after that for them was the Alamo. It was the same thing. That, there was an Alamo movie. Yeah. But the Alamo is, you can't copyright Alamo. So they just made this game kind of, you know, trying to ride the coattails. Yeah. But in both cases, they tried to ride the coattails of movies that were really, really bad. So it was like, <laughs> it was completely pointless. But then the, the that's the Crusades you were talking about, right? Where you... You did all the voices. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it was like for the history. It was a very historically accurate game about the Crusades. 
where I'm doing all of the accents of all the people during the Crusades. It was kind of like a action RTS, right? Because yeah. it was RTS, but there was no base building. But did somebody put a metal bucket on their head when you recorded that? Unrelated. Okay. No, <laughs> because we had like the night and he had this the sound of his voice. Yeah, <laughs> it was muffled. I think I was like, oh, that's the mighties. Someday I hope somebody releases a remaster of the Zono collection because, you know, they were really bad games. But in retrospect, there was a lot of fun elements. I will say that uh, the Alamo game was actually a well-designed. Yeah, yeah. Alamo is actually really good. The the way you could organize your units in real time. The type of stuff you could previously only do in like turn-based strategy games. And we got it working really well to, uh, to do all that kind of stuff quickly and what what had, what had happened? Metal Fatigue had come out. AVP used the same engine, and then Activision came to us about doing budget games. We had all this tact for AVP. So when we did that first game, which was the Crusades, it's basically AVP with like only like four or five units and one map. You know, so then we went and did the next game and the next game. So with each one, we would use a little bit more of AVP or we'd add one feature to the game code. And I think it was Troy was the last one we did and it had a big, it was like double the budget of the other one. So it was like 200K, which is, you know, which was tiny back then. I think we got double the schedule too, which means we had like six weeks to work on it. (laughs) And it was, don't exaggerate. It was like three months. But it had ladders that you could climb the walls with. That was right. a killer feature. Right. I mean, we were kind of copying some of the stuff that had come out in Warcraft 3, but in a game with 1% of the development budget. It might be even less than that. Probably it's like one-tenth of a percent. Game development from those days always sounds a bit... I don't want to say ghetto, but it, it, it sounds like it was always a, a struggle. I'd like to hope it's changed a bit for you guys uh, in the later years. No. Yeah, Google's still like that. <laughs> We've been recording stuff for um, augmented reality in somebody's garage. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I think the lunch is better. Yeah, we do have lunches, so yeah. it's that. We just had a house of pizza. Oh my gosh, house of pizza. Sorry, that's almost an inside joke between us. Our, our favorite lunch spot in Arizona was called house of, house of pizza, actually. Yeah, house. It's very German, the pizza. German pizza place in Orange County. Very... <laughs> and we had a coworker who would order the same thing, pepperoni pizza with no sauce and no cheese which is just like focaccia bread is like I think we'd call that today. And he would eat it and almost choke every single time on a piece of pepperoni. He would get stuck in his throat and he'd have like a seizure at the table every at least twice a week. Good time. Mike, since, since you're bringing it up, and this is just something I don't think is ever really talked about, I've got to ask, how much did Extinction cost? What was the budget? I don't remember, but it would have been at the most, maybe it was $2 million at the most. I feel like that's the number I heard as well. I think so. I mean, and like Jason said, it was a small team. I mean, when I got there, it was maybe 12. You know, maybe I think during that last phase, it was like 10 people. Does that include the minibar in the office or are we... (laughs) There was no minibar. Counting for that separately. (laughs) There was no... I mean, it was... The team was an inexpensive team, right? And that was for for kind of years after when I was selling the team. You know, that was our our pitch was that we're inexpensive. But it was also a small team. And there was all this tech that was built for metal fatigue. But I will tell you, of that two million, probably about a million of it got left on the floor. And I said at the beginning, I was going to shit on Fox a little bit. But, you know, Fox had like a succession of people put in charge of the project that were mostly just people from QA and they would come in and like, they would ask for something and it would get built. And then they would say, no, we don't like it. Take it out and just get thrown away. And so that was the big thing when I 
one of the reasons why I wanted to, to get involved and one of the reasons why, you know, I wanted to push it to the end by stopping all that. I mean, there were things like I was like, hey, how come there's no cutscenes? And Brian, how come there were no cutscenes? We had cutscenes. They were in-game cutscenes, very revolutionary for the time. There didn't weren't there like rendered cutscenes that got thrown away or am I uh, remembering? Their studios wrong? made us a rendered cutscene at the end. We had no involvement in that. They saw our art assets and said, Yeah, we, we got this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did it ship with it, though? No, no, no. It was part of the ad campaign. Oh, oh, I see, I see. But I remember asking about a bunch of things, you know, like I would say, like, what about this or what about that? Like, and then every time I'd ask, Jason would be like, oh, yes, yeah, some Fox QA guy said it wasn't good enough. And we removed it. You know, there was a story that somebody on the Fox side had played Age of Empires. And so one day there was just like a list of every Age of Empire feature. Can you please add these things? Yeah. Uh, my favorite Fox tester producer, tester slash producer anecdote is when, well, I have two. The first one is we would go to these meetings and they would tell us about, they consider themselves the holders of AVP canon and they knew it all. And like Jason and I were, you know, we knew everything about the movies. We watched them a 10 million times. And we had this point where we had the predator could, could only cloak when he wasn't in water. Because in the movies, you know, he jumps in water, it ruins his cloaking. And the, the tester at Fox would say, no, that's coincidental. Like, no, every time in movie one and two, if he gets near water, his cloaking cuts out. That's a coincidence. It's unrelated. So that that's why it doesn't affect it in the game. That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unrelated. It's oh, they made you change it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we need to patch that. And then, and then my other favorite anecdote is our main designer, Novak, who's like our, our mentor at the time. We love Novak. He wanted to have female predators in the game because, you know, that's something he'd never seen before. He loved like having new stuff. And so he went to Fox and said, oh, yeah, we're thinking about adding female predators. And the tester said, oh, you can't do that. Oh, why not? It's like, because predators are strong and females are weak. Oh, man. (laughs) Cool, bro. (laughs) Next topic. Well, eventually you'd get female predators like in 2020 with hunting grants. So it would come to the gaming space eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that last phase of development where I, where I finally got to like get involved, I basically just said, we're not listening to them anymore. We have a game. We're going to finish it. Anything that they ask for, we're just going to say no. So, and they would start putting things in the bug database, you know, that were like game changes. And we're like, nope, that's gameplay. We're not changing that. That's a feature request. We're not doing that. And, and I said, we can, we can wrap this thing up. You know, we can take, spend another year and a half. We can wrap this thing up in like three or four months if we just stop listening to their crazy changes. And that's what we did. And honestly, that, that was really, that was fun for me because I just got to sit there and just say no to everything. Right. And our Fox producer actually like lived with us because he, he worked up in LA and, and it was like the office was like five minutes from our house. We gave him like a back office and he would just sit there and he was just so sick and tired of the whole thing. Like, I don't think he actually worked on the game at all. I think he was just back there like reading comic books or something, but it was fun though. And the end result was good, but the end result should have been twice as much. Yeah. More than half the game got cut. Jason, why don't you like briefly tell them about the original idea of the game, like what the game was until they pulled With all the, the tactic levels. stuff out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just some. I'll, I'll go back to sort of the origin of the whole thing. I think, and Brian, I'll probably remember some stuff wrong, so feel free to jump in if I say anything that isn't accurate. But uh, so we had just finished Metal Fatigue, and we were looking for another project, and we were considering a bunch of things, uh, and I'll. I'll actually segue into one of them briefly in a minute, but what, what ended up happening was we, we heard through uh, a developer producer friend of ours, uh, who I think was working for Looking Glass at the time. Ken Rossman is his name. And he had heard through the grapevine that Fox had been looking for someone to do an AVP RTS for a long time, which is interesting because Mike sort of mentioned that from the other side of things. 
sound like they've been talking about it for quite a while, but we talked about it. We, we went and told Ed and Novak, our, our bosses, that they were looking for this and we were really excited about it. And so Ed uh, and Novak got a meeting with the producers at Fox. And, and so Ed said to me and Brian, like, we're going to go up there to pitch them a game. You know, so we need we need an idea for a game. And then we really want to wow them. So what we want to do is actually show up with like working software. And so over the course of like, it was very little time, Brian. Do you remember how long it took? It was like a time? month or weeks. Probably like a week. A few weeks. Maybe two at the most, I would think. But we basically, we wrote up an idea. Mostly Novak wrote up the initial like concept. Uh, but it was all, you know, just us brainstorming as a team. And then we we took Metal Fatigue essentially and just ripped out, you know, Metal Fatigue for anyone who's not familiar with it, probably most of you watching this. Um, it was a giant robot, you know, mecha, RTS. And its sort of main claim to fame was that the the limbs of the robots could get hacked off during battle, and then you could pick them up and stick them on your own robot and kind of mix and match parts like that. But its other claim to fame compared to something like StarCraft was that it had three layers to the battlefield. There was the main battlefield that you're sort of used to, but there was also like a sky layer, which we had like these floating asteroids that you would fight on. And then also these underground caverns that you would actually dig out with your vehicles, and uh, there was resources down there and things like that. We took Metal Fatigue, we we ripped out all the robot stuff. Brian spent a mad week, you know, modeling, you know, the, the Marines and aliens and, and a predator. And then we we went and I think we found a website that had a bunch of sound effects from the films and we just stole everything. Yeah. And uh and threw it in this demo. And the demo was essentially very much inspired by Aliens, the movie. It was just a team of space marines who were going into this uh, cavern to root out whatever was causing this issue. And um, we were able to do a lot of stuff with um, the fog of war that we had in that game engine. And um, we added like motion trackers. So it would like kind of mark roughly where things were that were outside of your actual view. And it was actually, I mean, you know, I'm not overhyping it. I don't think, Brian, you can weigh in too, but it was really good. Like it was just a, like a five, 10 minute demo, but I mean, it really sold what we wanted to do as a sort of not like a StarCraft type game where you're just moving around vehicles and the units are just tiny little pixel guys. We wanted to do something close up, almost more of a real-time tactical game than a real-time strategy game in a way. Yeah, our big concern was that if we didn't do anything, because again, this is like mid-90s or late 90s, you could still go to a publisher and pitch a game without a demo back in these days. And so we were thinking like, if we did that, the publisher's going to say, hey, we love Command and Conquer. Can you just make an AVP Command and Conquer? It's going to be awesome. And it's funny because that's why Jason and I and everyone worked on this thing because we wanted to be close up to the Marines and we wanted to feel claustrophobic. And then we'd get there and they told us what they were thinking. And it was like, yeah, the aliens, they would have like alien tanks. It would be great. Like an alien face like a tank. That makes an alien tank. This is how it's going to work. Command and Conquer, aliens, go guys, go. <laughs> so we were so glad we brought this demo. Yeah, because I think um, the meeting was kind of one of those magical moments we we showed him this demo and like i turned around i don't remember which one of us was actually playing it it might have been brian but i kind of turned and looked at the two producers from fox who were there and they were just staring at each other with like their jaws they were just like this is what we've been waiting for like they like brian said they thought they wanted command and conquer and then they saw this like close-up tactical thing that felt like something from the movie and they were just like I mean, you could just tell right then that they were going to go for it. It, it felt really gratifying because it was a lot of hard work in a very short amount of time to throw that demo together. I wish we still had the demo. Someone probably has it. But yeah, I think that basically sold it. Like the actual game concept that we wrote up, mainly Novak wrote up, was, you know, not as, it was sort of like, yeah, whatever. 
the the thing that they could see on screen and actually get their hands on and play. And when they heard how quickly we had made it, <laughs> that probably set us up for problems later, as Mike said, because <laughs> the whole thing ended up being like laid and over budget and stuff. Yeah, that was Mike's problem, so we didn't have to worry about that. But it was it was more tactical, right? And it had inventory, and you yeah. know, it was all yeah, yeah, totally persistent it, characters, right? It wasn't like just make ten marines; it was they had names and stuff. Right? Yeah, I mean, it was meant to be much more like a series of scenarios that you played more tactically, and, and a story would unfold and all that. It sounds a lot like what they're doing at the minute with Doctor Sam. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that was sort of our initial concept, and that was what we we were sort of aiming to make. And I think what the first sort of major wrench that kind of threw everything out of whack was uh, that they wanted, and we wanted, I think, at the same as well, to do multiplayer. When when we actually started development, a lot of the attention was on multiplayer and designing units that you know were you can have all three sides fighting all the time, and it would be sort of fair for everyone. And that implied you know sort of like more classical like you know, resource management and like going and taking over certain spots, which is where the, the micro atmosphere processors came from. But it ended up kind of over the over the course of development, it, it, it sort of diluted the original vision of like this, you know, scenario tactical based game. And then the, the great irony and frustration was that they we ended up cutting like the entire multiplayer aspect of it in order to, to get it shipped. And it really compromised, in my opinion at least, especially in hindsight, like the single player game was never really that satisfying because so much of the, the gameplay had been, well, you know, it's okay for single player, but the main reason it's there is to kind of teach you the multiplayer aspect. And then that never ended up getting in there. So... You know, you talked about multiplayer also, right? And I know by the time I got there, multiplayer was gone. And I had asked, hey, what about multiplayer? And <laughs> Jeff said, well, you know, the code's all there, but like Fox decided to cut it, right? And it was another one of those, like, you know, I wasn't there for that conversation, but I think it was just some capricious decision, you know, some QA guy kind of thing or something like that. And we had PC, right? Like when I played at my desk, I didn't play on a on an Xbox. I played on a PC. I would say 95% of the time we played it ourselves was on PC, me and Brian. No. Especially. Yeah, with a mouse and a keyboard, not a controller too. Yeah. You know, so I'd go to Jeff and I'd say, can we ship this PC version, right? And he goes, well, yeah, he goes, uh, we just need a license for Miles Sound, right? Which is a thing a lot of PC games use back then. But other than that, it's basically shippable, you know, like we just would need to like spend a day or two and make an installer. And I was like, well, RTSs are like, a, that's the number two genre of PC games, right? At that time. Now it's not as big, but at that time, RTSs were were really big. So I go to Fox and I'm like, this is awesome. I get a couple hundred thousand dollars from Fox. We'll ship the PC version. And they say, look, we've got this PC thing. Like, you know, you guys have seen it. Like, it's done. Why don't we just ship this at the same time? And they said, well, um, you know, we're doing a deal with, with EA and EA doesn't want to ship it if it's not multiplayer. And I was like, okay, but the multiplayer is all there. We just, we cut it out. Like, let's put multiplayer back in and make PC. So the guy looks at me and now at this point, Fox has sold all the games to Vivendi Universal, right? Who also own Blizzard. And so th this guy that I'm talking to, technically he works for Vivendi now. And they don't own the game. The game is owned by EA. So there's this weird thing where I'm not even supposed to deliver builds to my producer anymore because he works for Vivendi who doesn't have any like legal relationship with this game anymore. Technically, it's EA. And he says to me, this is uh, like the boss, not the producer guy. He goes, well, if we wanted to do a PC AVP game, we would just call Blizzard and have them do it for us. <laughs> Those are the yeah. days. 
even at the time, I knew that that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard, right? So I was just like, huh, okay. But again, it's done. We could just package it up and ship it. And they just, they had no, they were like, you can't ship an RTS without without multiplayer. And I, I think today the argument I would have made was like, look, for $100,000, even if the thing's a failure, you'll still make millions, you know? I mean, it's AVP, you'll sell a few hundred thousand units at least. It's funny you're bringing up the multiplayer thing. And and it also sort of relates to what we're talking about off the air about making up stuff for interviews. <laughs> because during press, you guys told everybody that it was in development before the online services were ready and good to go at Sony and Microsoft. Yeah. So you 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 were you were cut off from a development side and told everybody lies in the in press. I, I didn't say nothing, it was all Mike. No, I mean, that would, wouldn't have been me. That would have been like, you know, that would have been Fox had some PR person. And that's just, I mean, that's not a lie. That's just spin. We had a really great idea for multiplayer for Predators. So in the game, the, the multiplayer game, it would be Marines versus Aliens. And then Predator players would see all the games that are happening. And the Predator could jump into any one of those games and hunt a specific person on the map and try to get out without getting killed. So he would be playing like a totally different game. He would just be like poking into existing real-time strategy games between humans and aliens. That's such a cool oh, concept. Yeah, I love yeah, that. that. I love that. Awesome. That's cool. It was a real kick in the gut when that part, the, well, the whole multiplayer part got canceled. And I, I mean, I think, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like the original plan was that it was console and PC and that the multiplayer side, like we knew obviously the PC multiplayer was no big deal. And we had all the code for that for Metal Fatigue. And it was sort of just like, well, the the console stuff will get sorted out as far as matchmaking and all that before we ship and we'll just drop it in at the end. But I don't know if that factored in their decision or if it was just purely a schedule and money thing, but... Yeah, in fairness, like that probably was a bigger problem. When I say multiplayer would have been easy, it would have been easy on PC. But on Xbox, like an Xbox wasn't allowed to talk to the internet directly. And you had to have this, like a bridge. I forgot what it was called. There was a name for it. But you literally had to have a bunch of servers that would bridge between the Xbox world and the internet to talk to like your master server, for example. And it was, it was a little bit more work than it would have been on PC on PlayStation. You know, PS2, Xbox actually had the internet. PlayStation didn't. Yeah. And there was a modem you could, $75, I guess it was internet. It wasn't a modem. It was like a internet adapter. I think it, yeah, I think it was just an ethernet adapter. It, it would have been a little janky. You know, it would have been like a feature on the box that no one ever used, right? Cause you would have had to like coordinate with a friend or something. But on PC, like they said, every, every PC RTS had multiplayer. And I, I think it would have been fine just to have a PC version that was multiplayer. And that would have been the, the feature of the PC game, you know. What about skirmish mode? Did you ever flirt with just including skirmish just against AI? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we we had that in Metal Fatigue. Uh, I think there was some challenges. And the nice thing about Metal Fatigue was that all three sides in the in the battles were essentially the same. They just had different parts and slightly different units, but their their goals and everything were the same. Whereas in AVP, obviously, each side kind of had its own unique thing they were trying to do and how they were going about it, which complicated things. But um yeah, I mean if 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 we were gonna have multiplayer we would have had we would have had skirmish against AI as well. But it was more of just the you know, there was a whole different set of maps for multiplayer. There was uh lots of things that you wouldn't necessarily do in the in the single player campaign that would come into multiplayer. But from a development standpoint, you know, it was it was just supremely frustrating because we we sort of started with 
making sure everything worked well for multiplayer in terms of the balance of the units and the things you went about doing so that the multiplayer would actually work. Because if we just made this scenario-based tactical thing, it would have been a major struggle to get anything fun multiplayer out of that from a balance standpoint and all that. So for whatever you know reason, that's that's why we sort of focused on that at the beginning of the, the whole process while the story and all those scenarios were getting kind of designed by Novak. And then when it all got dropped, it was like, well, gosh, you know, now our single player game is not what we wanted it to be originally because we had to make all these compromises to facilitate multiplayer and we're not going to get multiplayer. So that was a very frustrating time for sure. What about the the concept of AVP as this RTS? At the time, one of the big games was StarCraft, and it was very obviously AVP inspired. The Marines were the Marines, and you had the Zerg as the yeah. So, you know, it had had, AVP had sort of influenced notable things there. But when when it came to you guys working on Extinction, was it a natural fit for what you were trying to do? You know, did it fit into your perspective of this real-time tactics game, as I suppose you, you were originally going for? Or was the difficulties making the concept work? There was one problem with the concept in that the alien life cycle, when you think about it in practical terms, is a little flawed. So aliens run out and try to gather hosts, and one host equals one new alien. But in the process of gathering those hosts, some amount of aliens are going to be killed by the Marine. Therefore, they're always fighting a bat- losing battle, which is why in a lot of our maps, we have animals everywhere that you can face up <laughs> to like get some fresh meat into the equation there. That was always a big hurdle for us of like, well, if you think about how aliens work, they're always going to lose because Marines are always going to kill some aliens and there can only be ever as many aliens as there are Marines. Therefore, how do we like make this equation make some sense so the aliens can have some fun? That's where the carrier alien comes from, too. But adding animals was a great solution to that. And that's yeah. that's game development is that, you, you know. But it was so uh, undramatic, like. You, yeah. you, your alien horde is made of cow aliens. Like, <laughs> is that really what we're going for? Shouldn't it be like dangerous animals? That's why we have like a variety of animals. Yeah, but in in uh, Alien Three, right? There's like the dog alien, and it, it's yeah. not sexy, but it's still an alien. It's still xenomorph DNA. So even if it was like a rabbit alien, it would still be deadly. One of the tricky parts about that, which is kind of the other major sort of frustrating issue that I mentioned earlier, if I can quickly give a little context to this too. Before we started working on ADP, we were we were entertaining a lot of possible projects, and and one of them was a, a Superman game. I think it was for Nintendo sixty four or something like that, but never never even got past the planning stage. But when we first sort of signed up to explore the idea with DC, they sent over this massive like thousand page Superman Bible that where all the things you couldn't, couldn't do with Superman, what he has to look like, how his cape worked. I mean, it had so much detail, all the story that was canon and so on. And then you could just sort of take that and use it as your rule book for what you can make and not make. Compare that to when we started working with Fox on Alien. And we were like, well, so do you have like stuff written up that we can use? And they were like, nope, we don't have anything. If it's in the movies, you can do it. Um, but you might want to ask us anyway, and we'll give you a ruling after the fact. And so a lot of the development was us kind of coming up with ideas or recognizing like problems with the, not necessarily problems with the ADP universe, but more of just like, how do we make this work in this context of this game? And there was no like clear, easy way to get answers on those things. It was always, you know, well, write up the issue or better yet, send us a build that sort of shows what you want to do. And then we'll tell you yes or no after that. So we would often have to make things 
in order to find out if we could do them or not, which, you know, as Mike said, a lot of stuff ended up on the cutting room floor from a budget standpoint. And that's where a lot of that frustration went. And it was actually pretty late in the process, maybe halfway through, where we were getting some weird answers back from them on stuff. And I don't want to dig on Fox too much. I'm sure they had their own frustrations and things going on on their end. But um, we got some some weird responses to a few of the things we asked about. And it was taking really long time to get these answers because we'd have to send them to our boss and then he would send them to the producers there and then they would get the answers and come back. And it was a many, you know, two or three day thing every time. And so we're finally like, can we just talk to the person who's making these calls so we can hash something out that'll work? And that's when we learned that it was like their one of their QA guys, a tester who was just, he would take the builds we were sending and then he would just like write up all these things that we were doing wrong. Because he had seen the movies once. So he yeah. was an expert. So he, he was their in-house expert purely by being the only one who would ever point out, you know, that we had done something wrong or something that didn't mesh with his vision of what the lore should be. Like there was no official lore. Yeah. So from the Fox side, when I had worked at Fox, one of the things like that when I was doing, you know, AVP, for example, I'd say like, well, who's the expert here? You know, I was thinking about like, well, Lucasfilm, there'd be a room full of people that were like the keepers of the canon, or maybe they would ask George. I don't know, you know, how that worked. And what I found out was that Fox, it didn't exist, right? So like if we were doing Titanic, then Jim Cameron would have to give answers. Like, you know, what would be the correct way to handle something in Titanic, for example? But when I worked on the Die Hard game, each Die Hard movie was a different director. And so there was no, they were like, you can do anything you want. The directors don't own anything. Bruce Willis doesn't own anything. You know, you can do anything. And so w- with Aliens, there was a woman in licensing who was the brand assurance was what they would call it, right? In other words, it was her job to approve, like the Kenner Toys would go to her. N- Nicole? I actually don't remember her name, but I don't think it was Nicole. She was wonderful. She was a great person. She would give me toys and stuff like that. And, you know, she would look at it and say, yes, that's correctly drawn. Yes, that's an alien. It's not doing anything that isn't appropriate. It will harm our brand. And that was it. But, you know, if you went to her and said, look, what about the movies? And she would be like, you know, I never saw the movies, right? There was no layer beyond that at Fox. So, you know, again, like on Die Hard, it was up to me. And we couldn't have anything inappropriate, but Brand Assurance didn't look at the Die Hard game. Right. Or they didn't look at AVP. That was not their job was to approve toys and bed sheets and, you know, lunch boxes and stuff. And so the good news was, yeah, that for the most part, you know, at Fox, at least we could we could do whatever we want. I'm just not sure that I would have put some dude in QA in charge of that. Yeah. And it almost at least at first, it wasn't even necessarily that the guy was in charge of anything. They didn't have anyone who was the keeper of the lore. And so it was more of just, a, you know, we would say, hey, can we do this? The producers would say, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And then two weeks later, they would say, actually, can you take that out? And we would be like, oh, okay. And it was only sort of as we talked to them more and got more and more frustrated that we realized that there was this guy in QA who was saying, well, you can't do that in, in this universe. And he would convince them and then they would come back and tell us to remove it or change it or whatever. And so it was just a... Uh, it was a it was a frustration, and I think you know obviously everything in hindsight is better. It would be it would be great, and I've since you know done the Gears of War stuff and Mass Effect and all that. They always have someone who's like they know the whole franchise, and they can either give you the answer or they can make a decision uh, and quickly, and it it just smooths everything out. 
We did use that to our advantage, though. We yeah. had some crazy alien units, like the Ravager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, like, the dual blazers for the Predator, like, crazy stuff that we thought would be cool. And at that point, like Mike said, we were just rushing to ship, so they didn't even care anymore. So we just put whatever we wanted in, which... Well, I and the difficult thing cool. for us was we constantly had this struggle of just we needed variety for this type of game. You need a lot of different types of units and different things they can do, and they need to be, you know, strategically make sense and all that. And there was this real resistance, I think, early on to just have anything other than your basic alien and your, you know, the Marines that you see in the films and the Predator. We were constantly sort of fighting to, to add stuff. And often we would just add it and see what they said because that seemed to be sort of the, the way they worked. I mean, for, from a gameplay standpoint, right? Like in an RTS, you can't just have like one Predator, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And in fact, the guys online, the fans of the universe would say, this game is horrible. You should only have one Predator, right? Like There should never be more than one Predator. They hunt alone, but it wouldn't be a fun game if you didn't have eight different kinds of Predators. So AVP Extinction really expanded the universe. I don't know if that, if any of that ever like leaked into other things, but we created all these new aliens. We created all these new Predators. The Marines, I think they gave us all that. Like that was, you know, the movie had enough variety. Yeah, there was no trouble on the Marine side for sure. Yeah. It seemed like out of all the Alien and Predator games released in this era, I think Extinction probably had the most fun when it came to creating these new yeah. units and adding to the lore. But beyond that, like what you've mentioned already, like what was kind of the creative process like trying to make these new units that had never been seen before for the game? I mean, you were saying like Fox wasn't really too worried about these new kind of aliens. There wasn't much back and forth with that. or So it wasn't so much that they weren't worried about it. It was that we would have to make it first and then show it to them for them to be able to decide if they wanted, if it was okay for us to do or not. And it seemed like, if I maybe I'm remembering wrong, and Brian, you probably were more into these meetings than I was, but often their default was no, and then we would have to convince them why the game needs it. But they, they were pretty resistant, at least early on, to adding too much new stuff. And I think that was maybe even borne out of a little bit of the fact that there was no one kind of in charge there of making these decisions. And so no one really wanted to be the one who would have to say at Fox, like, yeah, I'm the one who approved adding this new type of alien to the franchise. Yeah. If you remember, like, you could select the types of aliens in the menu system, and it would show, like, that alien standing. For the longest time, the alien warrior had a giant penis hanging down between his legs. Like, really long, out of control. I just remembered that. Yeah, and it was like our test to see if Fox is looking. <laughs> and it was in there for months. Like, every build we had send, this alien just had it swinging back and forth in that, in that menu. And no one ever said anything about it. I'm like, see, they're not they're not looking. We could do whatever we want. Yeah. This thing has, like, a three-foot-long schlong hanging down the menu. <laughs> Front and center, it's going to poke your eye out. Like, a week... Before we started to get into the cycle of sending final builds, there was a bug in the bug system that says, it appears the alien warrior has a giant penis. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good test, though. Yeah. But Brian, like, for example, there's like the king alien, the queen alien. I mean, the queen we had in the movies, but the king and the Praetorians, you know, did somebody do a sketch? Like, how did that get modeled? Oh, yeah, we just went for it. Yeah. Yeah. And they were purpose built. They weren't just, hey, it would be awesome if we had an alien with a giant schlong. It would be like, there's a reason why each one was created, the Ravager. The idea was, we should have an alien that could chop off someone's head off to execute somebody. And the idea was, like, it's going to be this, like, risk-reward thing, because if you cut its head off, you're not going to be able to face-hug it. Okay, great. That's what we're going to have. It should be really big, because it's an in-game unit, and it has giant claws, because that's what it does. It cuts people's heads off. 
Uh, so the designs of the new alien types were to serve the purpose of the game that they were meant for. So the carrier, we needed something to get a lot of face huggers in there quick. So you could like hit that mob of Marine. Oh, uh, what would do that? Uh, I don't know, like an alien where the pipes on his back carry face huggers. Good, go. <laughs> do it. <laughs> Did you make those models, Brian? Or was yeah. there another modeler? Yeah, Brian, I think Brian made all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Do you still have the models? In my mind. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't count. I know it doesn't help you guys in the past, but they do have somebody like that now. They did over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, yeah, and I can see that. And I think that's a lot of that is just the maturity maturity uh, of the whole industry kind of growing up to be more like how movies are done. It's everybody catching up with George Lucas is what it yeah. is. Well, it also could be Disney, like Disney makes franchises, you know? So for Disney, they've got whole teams of people that do that stuff. So maybe that's when that happened. No, it was, it was before. Yeah. Um, they probably around 2010 is when they started to take it a bit seriously. Yeah. Had like the equivalent of the story group that Lucas had. Um, they had like uh, consultants putting together big timelines and big Bibles and stuff like that. Adam and I contributed to a couple of them. Oh, cool. You know, they, they, they take it seriously now. <laughs> Thank God. But it, I mean, it's, it's funny you, you're bringing it up as well. I forget which game it is, but it might have been it might have been Rebellion, you know, where they asked for reference material and they got sent like Stan Winston's test footage of the alien queen as a garbage bag creature. So, you know, you you guys had it rough trying to get stuff from Fox. They, they, they just told us to watch the movies. They said, if you can see it in one of the movies, then you guys can do it. Otherwise, you got to get us to okay it. And I think their problem was that they didn't have anyone that they could go to for an official there was no like there was no one person like like in the, you know Mike's Titanic example who who would be the final decision maker who was who had some vision that they were making sure everything fit with it was sort of just like everyone doing whatever they wanted to do and hoping it worked out yeah things have changed there for sure i know with alien isolation i think they provided the dev team like all the original sounds from fox from the original film i'm curious about some of the concept art for the game, I mean, these days you have like full art books that are released for games that just feature loads of concept art, but very little has really been seen publicly for Extinction. Is this just a case of concept art production for games being more extensive now, or is there art it's for this game that's yet to be seen? I'm a better 3D modeler than I am a drawer, so <laughs> <laughs> we did it live. Yeah, but there was no concept art, right? No, we would just we would just build it, and and it actually. It meshed well with the way they wanted to work because if we did, I think there were a few occasions where we would send them a, either a write-up of something we wanted to do or a or a simple drawing or whatever. But anytime we just sent them a build that had this thing in it and we could say, here's what we want to do with this, that would get us the quickest yes or no like and, and unequivocal uh, because they could see, like we could tell them we needed a unit that worked this way or whatever. But when we actually just show them the game with that, they would go, oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. It, it just worked much better for us. And, and like Brian said, I think he could probably model like the carrier alien and get it working in the game faster than he could, he could sketch it. And, you know, you, not only do you get to see it, but you get to see it working and fulfilling its purpose. Yeah. And we were in a survival mode at that point. We just, it would have been better had we sketched everything. Out sure. Yeah. Concept art. But we were just trying to finish this thing because yeah. it was, we were just going for it. And another thing we really like about Extinction was the visual and audio continuity between AVP2, which is one of the like 
big games that brought Aaron and I into fandom. And Extinction, you had units that looked similar to their counterparts in EVP2. You had some of the same sound shared between the games. I think at the time it was commented that it was an intentional design decision to keep continuity between the games made during this era. Was that something that came down to Fox Interactive? Or was that another publicity spin line? I feel like that's a little bit of a spin. I mean, there might have been, honestly, and I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt here, but it could have been that some of the things that we would ask them, hey, can we do this? Or how should this look? Or whatever. Part of their decision factor was, well, let's go see what they're doing in ABB2 and, and make sure there's some continuity going on. But it, that wasn't ever communicated. I don't remember that ever being communicated back to us that, you know, do it like this game is doing, or this is why we have to do it this way or whatever. It may have weighed in their decisions, but it wasn't, it wasn't made apparent to us. I do seem to recall that we were, we were given a big dump of sound effects. We got their player models too. And the player models, that's right, to, you know, basically use as, as we saw fit. So that's, that's certainly where the, the sound effects part came in, I would imagine. I, I mean, it's no surprise that their assets when we got them were of a level of fidelity that was a little bit above beyond what we were working on at the time. So any connection you see between the two, it's us getting inspired by receiving their <laughs> assets and trying to up our game a little bit. Yeah. One one of the things I really like about Extinction actually, in terms of like some of the, the mission objectives that you end up playing through, is how you often you know, if you're playing as the Marine, you would come up as a human as an enemy. If you're playing as the alien, uh, it was obviously the K K species and predators again with the um goddamn predator bureaucracy pitting them together you know against opposing clans just to be dicks the games never really did a lot of species on species fighting tell us about the sort of decisions to include that as as parts of extinction especially the predator stuff because you know that was a very dominant part of the narrative of that that campaign if i recall and again i'll ask brian to to correct me on anything that i'm remembering wrong but i think a lot of that came out of the fact that we were we were mainly developing multiplayer at the beginning because we wanted to have like in most RTSs of the day you could have battles that where people just pick whatever side they want and yet it still has to work so if two of the players picked aliens and the third picked predator you had to have something going on there and then even though the multiplayer itself didn't make it into the final game the the fact that we had all this material was just something that, it was a tool that we could use in designing single player missions We've got all this stuff for having two different alien sides, so let's just let's make some missions that take advantage of that. We had this idea for Predators where, and a lot of this has been fleshed out in the last 20 years, but back in the day, we were big fans of the Dark Horse comics and we loved the Predators from those comics. Yeah. But their culture, what the, the Predator alien was all about was very constrained. They were like noble hunters that would you know get attracted to planets that have the dangerous prey on them and so our military predators were supposed to be like the other side of predator culture where they actually have like this whole society and the predators that we see in the film are like the redneck predators that like just want to go out and kill something that's not all predators and that's where this predator bureaucracy comes from like you have the military predators that are actually like you know normal predators that's how predator society works going and trying to rein in all of these random hunters that are going across the universe dropping alien eggs on planets so they can hunt things which that was a lot of the those types of things at least were a lot of the butting heads we had with the with the QA person who was the <laughs> unelected keeper of the lore. Yeah, he loved the like savage individualism of the predator. It's just a man versus the universe. Yeah, yeah. And like to suggest 
Again, I'm not saying that our concept of the Predators should be canon or was the greatest idea ever, but it didn't fit into this is one man or one Predator in this case against the universe. He takes all comers and that's all Predators are all about. Like that didn't seem right though. Yeah. That seems like a little bit of ineptitude on on Fox's side there with the person being in charge, not knowing what you're doing with the genre. You know, you need that variety. It's a a big difference, I guess, between, you know, wanting people to adhere to what's already there rather than looking at it more of let's grow this and expand it and explore other aspects of it. Because when you get into that territory, that's when you're saying you need to say, yes, we can add this to this universe. And people get nervous, you know. I remember we had the ancient predators and in the ancient predator ship, they had like a banner on the wall with their, their predator symbol on it. And the feedback was like, why would predators have a banner bro? Like they don't even, they'd be hunting. They wouldn't be making like stitching banners and stuff. That's lame. I'm like, hey, that can't be how predator, how do they get spaceships if all they want to do is hunt stuff? Someone's got to cook the predator food. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's something that they've only really started to try and, play with a little bit more yeah. and even then it got caught you know that was supposed to be a thing in uh, the predator yeah. you know there, there was two creatures in it that were supposed to be scientists predator scientists and yeah they were entirely removed from the film so even then even if they are starting to explore it a little bit yeah. they've, they've pulled back on 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 that aspect and you know it is i think mike you were sort of asking earlier you know how much of it leaked how much of what you guys did leaked out into the rest of the eu and you know, it's stuff like this. It's stuff like the the idea of a predator bureaucracy making clans compete for rights that hasn't, that should have. You know, because that kind of stuff is is narratively speaking and law speaking some of the really interesting things that you do in the game and and the other units as well. You know, the the ravager and the carrier they never really went anywhere with the other stuff and it just served as something that you guys were doing for the RTS genre and, and it's always been a bit of a shame. I guess if you think about it in the alien world, not AVP or, or you know, beyond aliens, they never really expanded aliens beyond, you know, the three or four aliens that you see, right? There's like the black alien, the brown alien, the queen. Do you ever see anything beyond that? Like really? Pred aliens, Praetorians. Oh, the Pred. Oh, I forgot about the Pred alien. Yeah. But the, the Praetorians never existed outside of the comics and the games, oh, yeah. unfortunately. Don't they, yeah. Do they not have one in AVP 2? Maybe not. No, that was the Pred alien. Yeah. That, that served as a bit of a catch all in that film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you have the, the later movies, right? Which was, uh, what was it? What was it called? The, I forgot the Prometheus. And, Prometheus. Uh, yeah. Covenant. Which I don't know. Is Prometheus alien? canon or is its own thing yes or? yeah it, it is it's controversial though right it, it, it is controversial for a number of reasons okay but yeah i mean i feel like predators at least had a little more they got their own movie a couple of times and then with aliens we just got prometheus whatever for better or for worse but i would have loved to see all of those characters that got built for the game i'd like to see a sitcom about Queen and King Alien sending their kids off to alien school. It could have been maybe a cartoon. I don't know. Hanging out in the alien throne room. Look at what they've done with Star Trek. You know, Star Trek, you've got like, you've got first contact and discovery. But you don't have one cartoon. You have two cartoons, right? There's lower decks and then there's that. Oh, well. Progeny, yeah, prodigy, the kids one, yeah, right? The kids show. There should be there should be an aliens kids show. <laughs> like they're not always just murdering people. Sometimes they're just living their life, growing up, having a good time, learning how to be the best face huggers. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, man. I mean, for such a massive franchise, right? Like, I'm not being funny, but for such a massive franchise that Aliens was. And maybe, maybe in some ways, like, you know, Alien 3 was such a dud and then Resurrection was just kind of weird. I don't know. I mean, Aliens should have been a massive franchise. You had Jim Cameron. You made this amazing movie. And maybe they just should have let him keep it. Well, there's a new movie and a show coming now. So we'll get lucky. Maybe. Is Jim Cameron involved? No. Disaster. (laughs) You guys will know better than me, but wasn't there one point when they were going to do another Aliens movie that Jim Cameron was going to get involved? Wasn't that a thing? Early 2000s, right, Aaron? Well, I mean, he was also kind of attached to Blomkamp's thing as well. A oh, little that's bit. right. Yeah. I mean, that would have, by the yeah. way, that would have been fucking cool. Well. More robots, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other discussion, right? Was there Tarantino, or am I totally thinking of something else? That's Star Trek. Oh, that's Star Trek. Okay. God, could you fucking imagine the Tarantino Star Trek? I think it would have been great. I mean, I, I think he would have adhered to the work. You know what I mean? He wouldn't have done Pulp Fiction. He would have taken it seriously as a yeah, talented yeah. writer that he is. And and to pivot from that onto a very specific, very minute, nerdy-ass question <laughs> that had just been something I've always wondered about, and you guys have mentioned these mini-atmosphere processes that the Colonial Marines repair to generate resources yeah. in, in the campaign. They're obviously a hell of a lot smaller than the counterparts in the film, but I was always curious as if it was an intentional reference to the novel of the film where they mention there being lots of smaller atmosphere processes on LV426. No. Or was that just a necessity of the game? It was a necessity of the game, and it's one of the few things I can sort of claim that I came up with. But it was basically there as a as a point of map control for the the tactical aspect, especially you know again in the multiplayer side, we needed things like that. But we also couldn't do anything on the scale that you, of the atmosphere processor in the movie simply because we were in this very close up. You know, we wanted to actually see the Marines walking around stuff and not just have them be little pixel specks moving around. So yeah, we, we it was purely a necessity to just have something that was tiny. And my thought, my sort of logic in my head at least was. You know, in the movie Aliens, there's this one giant structure that fails. So it would seem like a logical next step for the uh, the company to Wayland Yutani to say, well, let's let's spread out ten thousand of them across the planet that are you know as big as a refrigerator, rather than just put all our eggs in this one huge basket. You and Alan Dean Foster, yeah, yeah. same brain. I've met line. him since, but we didn't talk about that. But yeah, uh, so that was where that came from. I actually, until you mentioned it in the into this chat i didn't even know that that was part of his book so while the dropship makes an appearance delivering new units for the marines and we see some wrecked apcs uh, there were never any usable equipment made with the exception of the exosuit did zono ever toy with the idea of having more vehicles in the in the game i imagine it could have uh, given the character designer something fun to play with uh, from the predator side of things too did, we had an apc you could drive around at one point we did yeah 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 it was just too huge and it's not square and things that aren't square in real time strategy games always have pathfinding issues. <laughs> we didn't have the most advanced tech back in the day. So everything had to be square. The problem was we wanted to be able to see people. And if you want to see a person, then a tank is going to take up like most of the screen. Like the dropship was also player controllable at one point and it was just too huge to control. It was kind of dumb. Like the predator thing you get as the predator is your home base. That little floating thing used to be really the large. shrine. Yeah, the shrine. Uh, we hey, we had a, a big old version of that that predators could sit on, and it never <laughs> made into the game. That would have been cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was purely just a, a scale issue, as I recall, and it was also a little bit of this sort of uh, you know going back to that original demo that we showed them and how it it just 
triggered this light bulb in, in their heads that they thought they wanted like a command and conquer style game. And then as soon as they saw our demo, they were like, Oh no, we're going to go this totally other direction and have it be close up and like gritty. And, and it'll, it'll capture that feeling of like a almost horror film kind of claustrophobia and stuff that you get, which you just, it wouldn't be there if you could zoom way out so that a, you know, an APC was something that you could actually drive around by just clicking on various places. I, I remember about halfway through when things were looking dark for us, like Mike was <laughs> alluding to, there was a point where Fox was like, you guys have that APC that you can control. It's in the game, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, why don't we just change this into APC racing? <laughs> <laughs> you, you're joking, right? No. No, that suggestion was made. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. It was technically focused. <laughs> I think the kind of like the lesson here is that you have these big corporations, like Fox was a giant corporation, right? That made, you know, some of the top movies of our generation. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that there's a bunch of individuals, human beings that are put in jobs. And so the difference between AVP being this amazing game and being a different game was just about somebody at some point pointed to one guy and said, you know, you're going to be in charge of this. And there was a producer in the beginning who I think is someone, I don't know if he knows aliens really well or not, but he was someone who would have been very consistent and would have stuck with the original design. And they fired him. And when that happened, I think that's when they didn't have a replacement. And I think they just said, well, we'll just let the developer keep going and we'll just have people in QA, you know, evaluate what they're doing. I don't know anything about that. I was long gone at that point. Like, I don't know why they did that. I know that when I met with them, they even, they had mentioned that, right? They said, well, we did have a strong producer on this and we fired him. And I think that the guy that they eventually put on board to be the producer was one foot out the door. He was like, fuck this place. I don't want to work here, but I need money. So I'll well, just- that was it was also sort of that time period you mentioned, Mike, where like EA was doing the game, but Vivendi had bought Fox, and so that like it was all very confusing for us, especially me and Brian, and sort of the, those of us who were you know directly working on the game on a day to day basis. We didn't really understand or even know what was going on with all the stuff. It was just very confusing, and, and the main message to us was just wrap it up. Yeah, you know, figure out a way to finish it as quick as you guys can. Yeah, we would be on calls where we didn't know who was on the other end or if we should do what they say or not do what they say. We just rolled with the punches. Yeah. Yeah. And what what ended up happening, like I said, and Jason reinforced, is that Fox sold it to Vivendi. Well, no, they sold everything to Vivendi except for this, which became a co-publishing deal with EA. Essentially, it means that EA got the game to publish. And it was through EA Partners, which was kind of like their third-party games we don't want kind of department. And so they really didn't put any budget into it. Problem was that they bought it, but they didn't own it. And if EA doesn't own it, then they see it as a short-term thing. Like, let's ship this and make some money, but not a long-term franchise. So they didn't want to invest in it because it wasn't theirs. And so I'd go to a lot of meetings with EA and, you know, it was just like, they were like, look, we just, we just need to ship this thing. You know, we're not going to put money into marketing. We'll do a minimal PR. I don't know if there was even a press tour, but in spite of all that, it sold 300,000 units, like in like the first ship, right? Which, you know, for console game, first ship, that's a big deal. Back then, 300,000 units was was a lot of money. But today, if EA shipped 300,000 units, they would everyone would get fired. But that was still like that was a, a win for AVP. If they had put money into marketing, you know, this was a multi-million seller easily, particularly if there was multiplayer. You you mentioned in marketing there and and Brian, you brought this up earlier when we were talking cutscenes. Why wow, you might not have got a lot of marketing that intro, that trailer, that cinematic one. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. We were blown away when we got that. 
I remember watching that on, do you remember the days of gaming magazines where they came with DVDs and CDs? I remember watching that on on a DVD that came with a random ass Xbox uh, magazine and, you know, it was fucking awesome. But we've never known, we've never known who did that. Yeah. So I'm I'm assuming that wasn't an in-house, that wasn't a Zono thing. No, if you you play our previous game, Metal Fatigue, uh, (laughs) we made the cutscenes for that in-house. That might have informed the decision to have someone else do them for (laughs) AVP. I think that those cutscenes were made by that was Fox, right? When Fox still had money and they So my recollection, and Mike, you you might even know more about this than I do, was that if there were going to be any cutscenes, that that was on Fox's side of the responsibility list. Yeah. And we would just add them to the game when they gave them to us. And then at some point it became clear we weren't going to get any. So we had to do stuff in the game engine or with the loading screens or whatever is purely a stopgap to fill in that blank. I think that was typical then, and it continues to be, right? Where it would be something just negotiated at the beginning, like, are we giving you money to make cutscenes, or are we keeping the money and we'll make the cutscenes, right? And so if a studio was a big, multi-hundred-person team, they would say, oh, yeah, we can make the cutscenes. You know, in this case, I think Fox was like, we'll take care of that. We won't give you the cash. We'll just do it. And at the time, it was very popular to hire. There were two or three big companies that did this. Blur was one of the ones that they probably did 20 or 30 different, you know, games. Digital Domain, I think. I feel like I remember talking to Digital Domain about it at one point. Yeah, Digital Domain had a whole game group, and they did lots of these, you know, intro movie cutscenes, trailers, whatever. And so that was a pretty typical thing to do. And I think, like I said, that was before the big shakeup at Fox when they had a lot of money. You know, there was management change at Fox like three or four times. So the management that was there when I was there, he was like all in. Just whatever it takes, you know, use the movie companies, use the the sound stage if you need to, you know, orchestrate music or whatever. It was like, whatever, whatever, whatever. We're, a mu- we're a movie company. So use those resources. And that's probably when that got greenlit. But then you had to pivot to using the cutscenes, eh, not the cutscenes, sorry, the loading screens <laughs> as an answer to not being given stuff by Fox. Yeah. And, and again, it was it was a combination of that and just the whole sort of directive of just wrap the game up finish it some way or another and so we just had to do whatever we could did you see the live action commercial that that's the one he's talking about i think yeah no 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 no. there was a rendered cut scene from blur that was awesome that was awesome that was the one i was was there's one where the predator is in the bathroom and the aliens in the shower that's right yeah Yeah. i think that was fake was that does anybody think that was real (laughs) i think that was an official ad yeah, yeah there was a bunch of yeah. them. Okay. I think that was fake because I only saw that like a few months ago. And I'm like, I was not the predator in that shot. <laughs> <laughs> they did a couple like that, which they got reused for a lot of different things. So, like, they'd reuse it for when Requiem was coming out on home release. And I think some of them were even used for like when AVP came out on home release and stuff like that. There was definitely Extinction ones as well using those sides. Who did the art for the loading screens, by the way? I think that was probably Albright. Oh, wait, wait, before I answer, did you like it? <laughs> we love them, and we, we want to have, you know... Wait, what, weren't we want there the hand-drawn loading screens that you hired an artist to do, or am I misremembering that? I think they use the AVP renders, don't they? AVP 2? Well, Brian's here, ask him. Well, uh, is that... Well, that was 20 years ago. Like I have no <laughs> recollection. I can either confirm nor deny I had any involvement in them. Do, do you have one you could pop up on the yeah, screen? Yeah, bring one up. I'm sure Brian uh, yeah, okay. if it's his stuff or not. I don't remember what they looked like, to be honest. So. I mean, the fact that you said you liked it leads it's me to believe it's not me. <laughs> oh, Brian. They were all great, yeah. 
And you, I know you said you did some voice work in your your games before. This was one of them, right, Brian? Like you contributed your voice to this one? Uh, I was one of the scientists, uh, I think, in this one. I'm trying to remember. So we had a gag where a lot of our characters would have the last name of Johnson because that's hilarious. I was Silky Johnson, (laughs) which was one of the Marines. And anyone named Johnson, it was definitely me. I feel like, am I remembering, there was another joke name in there too that Novak did that we all constantly cracked him up, but I can't remember it. Yeah, we love our. By the way, do you guys know that you know Extinction was not the original name of the game? Natural selection. I guess you do know. Okay, never mind. For years, well, maybe two years, folk were aware of the existence of a console game called Natural Selection, but then it wasn't until it was announced as Extinction that people became aware of what it was. You know, this this strategy. Yeah. So those load screens were provided to us. I didn't create those. Okay. No idea who did those ones. Yeah, I think no. I vaguely remember Dave Stalker telling me that they had hired someone to do the yeah, one. Yeah, they hired a the guy. Yeah. Okay. I think it was like it was for something else or something, and they said, "Oh, we'll just you know we'll save a bunch of the frames out or something." Like I don't know, I don't know what it was. I just vaguely remember. But yeah, and the natural selection thing was because there was another game. There was a PC game called Natural Selection. That's it was a right. mod. It was, it was thing. a mod or something. If I remember, it was a Half Life mod. That's and right. so the, you know, some lawyer just was like, "No, you can't do that." So that was that. I kind of I thought Natural Selection was kind of a neat name, but Extinction was pretty good too. So yeah. And were there any aspects of the game that you were really worried about during development that you felt you absolutely nailed it when everything was said and done? I don't know if nailed it fits most <laughs> things in that game. <laughs> well, one I can remember. At least from the stuff that I was personally like designing and working on, one of the big things we were worried about when we started was how you would control an RTS with a console controller. Because all of the popular PC ones, obviously, were mouse and keyboard. And the the big thing that we hated from other console RTSs, and there weren't many, if I recall, was basically they were just doing a mouse and keyboard interface with a controller. So you still had to like try to get the stick to this corner and then drag a box and... Yeah, you could play like Warcraft on N64 at the time. Yeah. And they did exactly what Jason's saying. You drag it. So it was really like fiddly and you would get the wrong units and you'd have to, we experimented with a lot of stuff. But my idea was let's just keep the cursor in the center of the screen instead of moving it around like a mouse. And that you would just select things by like pulsing out this little selection circle or box. I can't remember what we shaped it. Circle. I think everyone was really skeptical about it, including me. But once we got it like working in the game, it actually worked pretty well. Yeah, it really worked. It was one of the, that was sort of like the moment where we were like, okay, we can actually do a, a fun RTS on a console. Because uh, that was the one thing that we were all like, how the hell are we going to solve this? Also putting like the hot actions on the D-pad, which is like standard in console games these days. But back then, like having all those hot actions on the D-pad was very useful as well. I, I would say that the controls are now standard too. I mean, I remember like a year or two later playing the Army Man RTS and it had the exact same controls. And I was like, yeah. I don't remember what game it was, but there was some game after that that had used the same thing. And I felt really gratified that. And I think the Halo RTS also had that. Yeah, thing. Halo Wars plays very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just say, like, from a business standpoint, from the publishing standpoint, when I worked on the on the publishing side, you know, it was like first-person shooter, RTS, and driving games were the number three, like, revenue-generating games at that time. This is, like, early 90s. And everyone was saying, man, if only we could do an RTS on console, because consoles where the money is, this was, like, the number two 
PC genre with, you know, StarCraft and Total Annihilation and Command and Conquer, obviously. And everyone just was like, no, you just can't do that. Like, it just doesn't work. Like, the controls aren't there. It'll never work. It'll never work. And so when I went and looked at what these guys were doing, you know, my first thought was like, holy shit, you guys cracked it. Like, the whole world is going to come to us and ask us to make, you know, 20 more games with this tech. And then it turned out that, like, literally the minute that that game shipped, the whole industry decided they didn't care about RTS anymore. (laughs) It was like, Five minutes before, it was like RTS just ceased being a genre and the idea of a console RTS just was no longer interesting to anyone. So, you know, I was about, you know, a year or two late, I guess. Yeah, I can't think of any other console games that tried to do intuitive RTS controls for a controller at like before Extinction. You know, you would see it later with those games. But It's funny because I feel like I remember like genuinely and i'm not trying to talk myself up at all but i i came up with that and then it worked really well and then like no one ever brought it up afterwards like that we had <laughs> solved this riddle or whatever uh in fact it almost was sort of like oh yeah that's just how console rts's are done isn't it like no one even <laughs> I, I mean that's a testament to how well it worked is it never came up again <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like good special effects right you're not supposed to notice them i think uh, it, it did, and you know, it felt natural, and, and we very rarely had to explain. Like we would give people the controller and say, "Play the game and tell us what you think," and they would get it like really fast. I was I was reading, like I like to do when we when Adam and I do these kind of chats. I'd gone back and I'd read some of the reviews. This is where I feel like you were un, you were treated a little unfair. Hmm. Because some of them were complaining about the control schemes and, and the controls. And I'm just here like, maybe, maybe it's also the benefit of years of hindsight of, of Halo doing it and stuff like that now as well. But I'm like, but this feels so natural. Yeah. And, and in some ways, it kind of makes me flash back to Alien Resurrection specifically as well, where that game did what has become standard now, you know, with looking on one um, analog stick and moving on the other. And you guys did what has become now a very natural feel of RTS on the consoles it's just you guys being ahead of the the curve and it's unfair to see or i felt it was unfair to see those comments in some of those old reviews it's it's like one of those things where i think like if you if you have ours as your example and it's for whatever reason not working for you it's very easy for people to go well you should have just done like how you do on a pc and that was the first thing we did because we literally just took metal fatigue and plugged a controller in and it was apparent right away to all of us that it was just a terrible interface for controlling a game on a console. So, yeah, I, well, it's frustrating to hear that the reviewers, uh, at least some of them maybe were complaining about Can we that. have their names and addresses? <laughs> I, I will certainly get your names after the fact. You'll, you'll have to do a bit of uh, sleuthing for the addresses. The reviews were like sevens. Is that what I remember? Is that correct? Yeah, it sounds about right. Six and sevens, yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's the thing about the game press, right? Also that like you can't ever satisfy them. And I think that they feel like they're not doing their jobs if they're not super critical. If you're like the greatest game in the world, then finally you maybe cross over the hump where they'll give you some praise. But other than that, it's just like they see it as their mission in life just to be, you know, to be negative. After we finished AVP, we, like Mike was saying previously, we did a s- selection of budget games that all received like single digit percentage reviews, like <laughs> eight, 10%. I think we did one, it was a rodeo, a rodeo game. You didn't do a rodeo game. Oh, no, no, no. That was, uh, I did that one with someone else. I'm not taking the blame for your shitty rodeo game. We did an Everest climbing game and that got like a 10% review. <laughs> it's like, this game is dumb. <laughs> but like, that's a thing with the game business again, also, which is, you know, the game box doesn't get the budget printed on the corner, right? Like, made for $120,000. And, you know, that's a problem. I think we didn't have a choice. 
right? That was work that was offered to us. Well, and I think you you can sort of probably see from this conversation that there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that affect what the final product ends up being. There, you know, no one sets out to make a crappy game or we did with Everest. We did with Everest. That's true. Yeah, and Crusades. That Everest, the RTS game. Where you click on the top of the mountain. But I guess my, my point is like a reviewer just they only look at the product. They don't say, well, how come you know this is like this? And we can say, well, because we had to cut multiplayer and da-da-da. Like that that's not it shouldn't be their job really to take any of that into consideration. But you can see why, hopefully at least, why some of the things turn out the way they do. Well, regardless if the game might have received mixed reception upon release, you know, from what we've seen on our end lately posting more about this game, a lot of fans remember AVP Extinction quite fondly when yeah. it's brought up, you know? Yeah. But upon release, did you guys have any like office reaction to seeing the reviews or were you just like, phew, I'm glad that's done. That was too stressful. Yeah, we, we definitely weren't like, it's not like we all thought we had shipped a masterpiece or something. The whole end part of the process was so frustrating for all the reasons we've discussed that I think none of us were surprised. Uh, in fact, we probably agreed with most of the criticisms and, you know, all we could do was, you know, at least know that we had done the best we could with the, the resources and the time and all that just to get something out the door. Cause the alternative, as Mike mentioned, was everyone getting fired and the game getting canceled, which would have sucked. So yeah, we were proud of it though. Like, yeah, it was cool having a box with our names on it that said like Xbox, PlayStation, and Aliens versus Predator, right? I mean, and Aliens be, versus Predator. Like, we are a very Xbox. small developer, so to like have a big license like that, and to I mean, we were proud of the game, and we would take the mixed reviews because that's that's a great review as far as we're concerned. Yeah, I mean, it was bittersweet because it really was a great game, and I think like we knew all the things that weren't in it. And we knew all of the political struggles and, and dealing with that one fucking tester at Fox every day. And we, and, you know, and dealing with management that was hostile to us. Right. But to make a great game and yet have those challenges, I think was still a pretty great accomplishment. I just, I would love to have seen the multiplayer PC, you know, version of that. I would have loved to see an expansion pack with more levels. I would have loved more. I mean, I, I don't even care about all the stuff that got cut, like, you know, the inventory and stuff like that. I mean, just even the final game through natural selection, you know, ended up having some really good stuff in it. Right. And it was a great game. I still, you know, I tell people for years, like, oh, I love this. Oh, I'm a really big fan of AVP, whatever. And I'm like, oh, did you play the RTS? Like, there was an RTS? Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? And I'd be like, well, you know, go get a PlayStation 2 and, and, and pick, you can pick it up for five bucks. It's a game that I think a lot of AVP fans, at least at the time, really wanted. Yeah. Because, like I mentioned, StarCraft is AVP, and we wanted to see our own AVP. To have got Extinction was great. I love to see these reactions. You know, Adam mentioned how positive people are when we bring this up. You know, when we did our, we did a, a little retrospective review episode and I'd ask people on all the social, on all the social channels, you know, what did you think of the game? And it was just so much overwhelming positivity. You know, there was some, as there is on the internet, um, you know, not so a positive response to it, but it was, it was generally people being like, I fucking love this game. I played it so much as a kid. Yeah, I played yeah. the alien mission so many times. I used to see how many aliens I could get and all, all that kind of stuff. So re- regardless of the critical reviews, you know, you, you guys did make a good impact on a lot of, a lot of AVP fans of the time, you know, and, and people are, I, I forget now whether it was during preamble or when we were recording, but you know, people were asking for remasters and, and attempting to remake the games themselves. So, you know, 
fuck journos <laughs> is basically the uh, we'll take it uh, end, end of that one so I, I know Mike just sort of I was going to spin to it a question there but then Mike sort of like made me want to spin away but I'm going to have to come back to it you know you guys have talked about half the budget being left on the floor and you know while obviously you should be proud of the final result is there shit on the cutting room floor that you guys really wished were in the game you know what's that favourite thing that didn't make it into the game that you, you really wish would have been oh wow the tunnels is the thing that I miss. Yeah. Like we had this idea that there's the surface that the Marines are best at. And then the tunnels are where the aliens are best at. And you could send your guys down into the tunnels, but that'd be like a really super dangerous thing to do. So you would want to like mass up a bunch of Marines at the mouth of a tunnel and then like send in a motion tracker to see if it's going to be safe. And it would be like super creepy to like get down in there because the aliens would have hived up the whole thing and they would have the all the advantages. And we had to ditch that whole idea of poking holes in the map and being able to have tunnels in there. For me, early on when I was there, because I got there at the end, so I don't have any firsthand you know, knowledge. And I, and I kept hearing stories about like what the game had been. And at some point, I vaguely remember somebody, it was probably Novak, showing me some documents or something. And it was like, or screenshots of the game when it had like inventory. And each guy on your team had, you know, armor and helmets or guns or whatever that you could switch and swap. And I thought, oh, that would have been really cool. Like, you know, more like an XCOM. Now, I don't know. I only saw this one thing. So I don't know if that was even part of the development or it was just an idea. But that said, I like the final game. I like the idea of an RTS where you're like, click, 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 unit, 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 you know, whatever. Because when I play RTSs, usually I just make as many guys as I can and just send them to the enemy base and overwhelm. But, you know, I think that more like tactical game, I would love to have seen that game. There was a time where the game was a lot like Dawn of War 2 where you had heroes that could have like an item and we actually had ammo too so like a marine could run out of ammo and you would have to set up a supply line of like an android that would shuttle ammo to the front which probably wouldn't have played out very well better conceptually than in practice but that kind of like detail is what we were going for at the beginning of having it like a a lot of weapons and armor and your weapon runs out of bullets so you got to go back to the like the weapon bullets station it sounds would this have been before or after you guys the first starship troopers rts we were after that really it sounds like there would have been some crossover there because I, I vaguely remember that being more of a real-time tactical game where it was doing like what you were saying you there would be there was inventory you could put certain weapons that, on certain units and there was yeah, we played it during metal fatigue. If I, I think that's, I think that's sort of the key, really, is that a lot of that stuff, especially the tunnels and the, the inventory stuff, it, it came down to a general feeling at the, you know, Novak and and higher level people at Fox that it was it was too complicated for the console. It's easy to manage all that stuff on a PC, but they there was like a process of simplification, I guess. Once the once the things that we designed that everybody thought, oh, that sounds really cool, but you know, it's once you actually start getting it in there, it, it uh, just was it was overcomplicating things in a way that was not compatible with our schedule and budget. I guess. Yeah, and and on top of that, having a dude that's out of bullets is no fun for anybody. Right. A net not fun situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after like seeing more strategy games coming out for consoles in the 20 years since Extinction was released, have you guys ever thought about how you might do a new AVP strategy game with how game development has evolved? I mean, one of the things that I think was sort of always in the back of our minds, and Brian, again, speak to this if you want to, but when we sort of got towards the end, I think we 
at least I would often look at the game we had made and and kind of wonder why isn't this as good as why isn't this as good as the demo that we showed them uh, that we made in like two weeks? Like there was and it was just the demo implied or, or spoke to more of a curated like scenario based progression type game with tactical situations. I guess maybe more like something like XCOM, but real time and and you know all that. And I think, you know, with a with a proper, especially with the budgets that games get these days to do like a, a genuine story that plays out in this, you know, series of tactical scenarios could still be totally amazing. That was sort of what in our heads what we had set out to do originally. Yeah, there's a, a fundamental flaw in early 2000s RTSs where maybe the best way to play is, like Mike said, make a zillion units, lasso select them all, and say, destroy this thing. Now destroy that. Now destroy this thing. We had we called this like the Uber unit, which is just everything you've got, uh, you're just microing it across the map. And modern RTS games find ways to prevent or not to, to discourage that kind of player behavior. Like Total War, for instance, that's just not a thing you do in Total War. And Dawn of War 2 has like heroes that you wouldn't really want to select them all at once because they all do different stuff. We could have put more detail into our game to support that kind of gameplay. We had a tester who all he would do when he was playing AVP Extension was just make a zillion uh, military exosuits and then go and stomp aliens with them. And it would like the game would be running so slow because he'd have 500 million of them and like it, it would just be a total mess. And it's not fun to watch. I'm sure it's not that fun to play except for the like audaciousness of it all. It's funny too you mentioned that because we haven't really touched on this, but as I as I mentioned earlier, we played on PC almost exclusively, especially for the first half of the development. We literally didn't have any PlayStation 3s or, or Xboxes to develop on. And I remember when we first got a PlayStation 3 and we had hired two. a... Two? Was it? two. I it was yeah, two. two. No, two. PS3 was like five years later. Okay. Well, anyway, it was when we had first got the dev kit and we got the game running on it and it was like an absolute slideshow. And there was just this sense of panic that we were we were already really low poly and pretty well optimized. It's not like the PCs we were running on were very fast, but we we were just we thought we were gonna have to go and gut everything down to just really, really crude. And you know, luckily it turned out that it was just, you know, it needed a lot of optimization, but and eventually we got it running just fine without really having to change much. But there was uh there was definitely a time there where we were, you know, thinking that we were gonna have to gut things even more just to have it run at a reasonable frame rate. Yeah, it turned out all we needed to do is lock an engineer in a room and put a hose that pumped Mountain Dew into the room. <laughs> yeah. And then three weeks later, he came out and it was fixed. Yeah. Yeah, PS2 was hardware that was really easy to make your game run slow. You had to actually purposefully write tight code to make it work well. And so it took us a while to get there. Fox actually hired another team to do that work for us. And they did nothing except drain a bunch of our budget away. And then we had one guy that turned out to be really smart and we let him do it. So it was literally it was literally just one dude in house yeah. who sorted yeah. all the problems. Yeah, on the PS2, there's like two little helper CPUs that do all the setup for the 3D map. And so if you don't do that right, then your stuff all runs at you know one FPS, right? So it was very very easy to be like, I got my game running, but you didn't write the VU code, and so it was just you know it's like a couple of hundred lines of assembly that he had to write and the first guy that did it was kind of checked out when he did it and so he wrote like thousands of lines of code that was really really slow and so at one point this one guy said i'm going to take this thing home for the weekend and he came back and he's like oh yeah now it runs 20x faster cool and he got a kidney stone for his troubles <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do who who was the guy do we remember the the hero's name Davey. 
Yeah, Dave Eaton, he lives right around the corner for me now, actually. I'm seeing him on Tuesday. He was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Tell him thank you. He's a very senior engineer gearbox now. Uh, in that case, don't tell him thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he runs teams, my gearbox. But he's like the, uh, he was the guy that was like self-taught, didn't go to college, you know, just wrote assembly language in his head. You know, it was like, he was a fucking genius. He is, I should say. And since your time working on AVP Extinction, the Alien and Predator games have seen some genuine highs and lows. Uh, have you played any of the games that came after yours? If so, do any of you have any thoughts on them? I have made an AVP game that came oh, after really? this game. Uh, you've not played it because it was Aliens versus Predator from the first AVP movie on mobile phones. But this is pre-iPhone. Yeah. Oh, feature phone. Yeah, feature phone AVP. It was it was awesome. It was the the first thing that I had to do was I had to go to Fox Studios and read the the because the film was unreleased at this point, so I had to read the script for the film, you know, to get the flavor for the film. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me leave with the script. I had to read it in front of them over in, in the room, yeah, two hours. And the first scene in the script it changed for the movie, but in the script the scene was like slow pan. There's a football stadium or a football field. And there's a car in the middle of a football field. And there's two teenagers having sex in the car. And then there's a predator <laughs> and an alien fighting on the roof. And I can like almost hear like a guitar rip in the background. <laughs> but, like, okay, this is going to be the dumbest movie. And then I read the rest of it. And it was basically like a predator CSI agent is like investigating Earth. <laughs> like, oh. So you mean the second predator, the second AVP is film? Is that the though, second yeah. one? Yeah. yeah, it records. Yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, because that's with the hyperfertility aliens where they uh, infest. Yes. So aliens. you worked on a mobile game for Requiem. I wasn't familiar with that. I've got one on my PC. I know actually. they worked for the first one. one. Yeah, it was at a company called Superscape that I worked for. Huh. I know they had that PSP game that Rebellion did, but I had not heard of a EVPR mobile. Game. This is for like Verizon phones. Oh, okay. So it was like a, a proto mobile game before iPhone even existed. Huh. It was an atrocious, atrocious horror. Is it the game. one where it's in like a, a research base or something and seemingly has nothing to do with the film? <laughs> yeah. yeah, except that there's a, a scene where a queen chases you through Antarctica. Hmm. Uh, okay, I never got that far. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a. It was like uh, we were we were inspired by uh, like rail shooters for this game. So it's basically a rail shooter. I know the first movie. There was a one. rail one for AVP. Yeah. yeah. You sure you didn't work on two here? I, I might have worked on two. Maybe I did. Two. I did do a, a second AVP game. So I might be like again. This is like 15 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was an on the rails for the first AVP. That's the one. Yeah. Then there was a more of a top down kind of thing where it was in a research base for AVPR. I think. Yes. Okay. So that we did okay. do both of those. Now, I'm not saying these are great games. These were not great games. <laughs> But on the flip side of actual great games, I, I played Isolation. I think that was the only one I played um, since I played it with the VR mod, uh, and it was just insanely good. Yeah, really, really good. How did you cope? Uh, it was pretty I think I spent an hour just hiding in a locker, watching a queen walk around through the little slats. I'm standing here in my right behind me here, you know, with my headset on and just going, "Holy crap!" <laughs> I went to, at E3, they had Oculus had a little demo area and a guy that I knew worked at Oculus, so he like kind of got me in. And I played that space sim, right? And I was playing that and every like minute or so, I'd hear someone scream, like the kind of scream 
when someone is dying, like terror, pure, pure terror scream. At the end of the demo, I was like, what the fuck was all that? And they were like, oh, that's alien isolation. And I was, and they go, you do want to play? And I was like, no, what the fuck? No way. Like, that sounds awful. So I never played it though. I think I have it. Definitely recommend it. I think it was like free Epic game one week or something, but I'm not playing that shit. It's an amazing game. It's really, really good. Do you have a gun? You have a flamethrower. Well, you have guns. They just, they're not very effective against the alien. Oh, no. It's more like hiding in lockers is what the game's all about. (laughs) But what I really want is I want an RTS or like an XCOM, you know, tactical game. And I bought Fireteam because I think I accidentally thought that that was a tactical game. And then it turned out it was like a first person shooter. I was kind of mad. Well, there's one coming out as of recording in 10 days that seems to be more like XCOM meets real-time tactical game called Aliens Dark December. Oh, okay. okay. I've just added it to my wish list while we're talking. By yeah. Tindalos Interactive, I believe they've done some of the Battlefleet Gothic games. Yeah, they were a French, French developers, I think. I'll point out that they did not call us. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know when this one came about, actually, because it's Focus publishing stuff at the minute, I think it is. Didn't call us. Well, that's everything Adam and I had prepared, but there were just a couple of questions that I thought were interesting from our community members. A lot of the other stuff they were sort of asking were things we'd already put in and you guys have already addressed. Uh, so just a couple more questions and then we'll let you uh, escape from these nerdy uh, nerdy folk. So Comanja would like to know, and I think, Brian, you alluded to this earlier, were Warcraft 3 style hero units ever considered? for extinction and i think that's a yes yeah, isn't it? they were did, didn't we have like named units they just weren't any different than the other units yeah. well you had one the elder one at the end of the predator campaign yeah he was pretty i that i loved making him because like what would an old predator look like well we should have gray dreads on him. that's gonna be people are gonna love it <laughs> they went blue ones for the films to signify old old predators yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went, you went far off the mark there. Did he have a cape? Did the cape? Did, does he, he has a cape, if I recall. I think he has a little banner, like yeah. he has a smaller banner on his shoulder or something. Ah, uh, the banner that. made it in. Who made yeah. that banner? That's right. Yeah, the banners are what predators are all about. Knitting is a big predator strength. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think we definitely had in the initial original design that Novak wrote up. There were hero type units. Right? Yeah. It didn't didn't last long though. Yeah, it just came down to the whole, you know, sort of RT. Like Brian was saying, this this mentality people get in of just I'm just going to suck everything and send it at the enemy. When you're mixing in people who are important, <laughs> it's uh, it gets too like picky and and uh, you know fiddly, I guess, to, to try to control that. And community member Hunter Getz asks, what unique opportunities did a top down perspective give to both? the AVP franchise and to your team? Well, for us, I think it played in really well to limiting your field of view purely because when you're looking top down, you can't see that much further ahead. So it it made it, at least in our initial sort of plan for the game, it made it almost easier to make it kind of scary and claustrophobic because you you literally just couldn't see past, uh, you know, 15 or 20 feet or whatever the the limit of the resolution was. Um, Also, when you look at screenshots... Like if you just do an image search for AVP extension, you just look at the selection of screenshots as painful as they are to look at because it's a 20 year old game. When you look at them, they look cool. 
It's like a bunch of Marines shooting at yeah. a bunch of aliens. And that's what like AVP is. Like there's predators pulling spines off things and a bunch of Marines shooting and explosions going off. And in a first person game, I don't mean to say anything bad about first person games, which I love, but you don't see like the top down drawing of here's a bunch of Marines, here's a bunch of aliens, this thing's exploding, that thing's blowing up over there, there's bullets flying everywhere. You get like these high drama screenshots in a top down game. You know what, you've just made me think of something I need to ask about as well. Whose idea, because I fucking love it, was it to have the aliens be decapitatable, but then also regenerate when they got to the house? Gosh, I don't know if I could... Brian, was that someone specific? Was that Peter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Peter. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. We love decapitating things. Our, it, we had the worst uh, character animation engine. So, like, you know, when we were making this game, proper skeletal animation was very common in games, even though in our previous game it wasn't that common. But in our game, we didn't have skeletal animation. So things were made out of parts, like the early PlayStation 1 games would be. The side effect of that is very easy for us to chop things off because you just make that part fall off. That's why heads are popping off all the time. It was That was the one like parlor trick we had. And so, yeah, like popping aliens' heads off was something we really loved to do. And Peter, by the way, left Zono after he did the Everest game and was one of the the small team that started StarCraft Two. So he continued okay. and he worked on StarCraft Two, I think, for like 12 years or something until he retired a multimillionaire. In retrospect, maybe we all should have gone with him. <laughs> that one did pretty well. Fucker. So that's that's actually everything. We're all tapped out. So before we let you go, before we let you escape, hopefully on part time for this podcast, is there anything you'd like to share? Any anecdotes or thoughts about your time working on Extinction that we just haven't given you the opportunity to with any of our questions or the, the flow of the conversation? Well, I mean, this whole chat has been a great, just from a nostalgia standpoint, you know, for, for all the frustrations that we had, it was a fantastic time of our lives. I think Brian and I, uh, you know, we had a, uh, an apartment that we, uh, that we shared up there near Zono and, yeah. uh, you know, we would, we would basically, we would work till like late hours all the time. And then we would go back to the apartment and play Quake 2 uh, multiplayer until, <laughs> you know, late, late. It was just a blast. I mean, yeah. we didn't know what we were. It wasn't a very experienced team other than Ed and Novak. Like the rest of us were all pretty green and, um, uh, it was just, it was just a, a blast. Yeah. We were just making games. Yeah. It's fun. Living the dream. It's kind of like almost like a time that you you know you'd read about, right? Because game development doesn't really work like that anymore. It's funny I, I, if I could quickly mention Mike because I I like to recommend this to people whenever they ask me about that time period. There's a there's a novel written by a guy named Austin Grossman called You. It takes place at a small game studio in Southern California in the early 90s, I think, or late 80s, and it's it's really really captures what it's like to be at Zono because there's a lot of stuff going on in that book that's really similar to what we we went through. What did you say it was called? Sorry, it's called U Y O U, like the word U, by Austin Grossman. But it really was like a, it was a different time. You know, teams are ten times bigger now, and and you know that team was small, it was scrappy. I wasn't getting paid because there wasn't any money for most of the time I was at Zono. But yeah, everybody there loved what they were doing. You know, there yeah, was like yeah. a sense of like being in the in the trenches, like in a battle. You know, and there was fun and there was misery, but we all had the common enemy of the, you know, the publisher. <laughs> it was actually just that one tester was our like selection. Yeah, but with kind of all of them in some ways. Yeah. I will say it was really, I mean, we brought it up a little bit, but it was frustrating in, in a key way a lot of the time that we would have these great ideas. Uh, and especially people like Peter that we mentioned, 
AVP was like his his dream project. And he came on fairly late in the project, I recall. And he would come to me with just like pages and pages of ideas and, and changes he would want to make. And he was a lot more into like the nitty gritty of RTS games than I was. And it was just frustrating to to have to go, yeah, there's no way we can get that past uh, our producers with uh, the time and budget we have left. Peter had worked at Westwood. I think he'd worked on Red Alert too, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Peter's responsibility was like the particles. And so because he was so passionate about it, that game was like this mess of the screen just fills with, you know, particles. And I remember there was this longstanding joke that he kept saying that someone was going to shoot radioactive fire. And there was this whole thing about was radioactive fire really a thing or not? You know, Peter insisted that it was. And I think there was a strong opinion that it wasn't actually a thing. Yeah, we had to figure out what color would radioactive fire be. Traditionally, radioactive things are green, but you can't have green fire because it looks like grass. So (laughs) it was, I think it was purple. But thanks again, guys, so much for for joining us. Uh, I know it's been a long conversation, but, you know, this game was was really important to Aaron and I growing up and we have fond memories of it. So thank you guys for, for developing it. It's gratifying to hear that it's still something people talk about and want to talk about 20 years on. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, thanks for having us on. It was, it was great chat. Yeah. Jason, Brian, it's great to see you guys. I wish we could have had the whole team. Yeah, yeah that would have been cool. Is there any um, outlets, any websites you guys want to refer people to to learn more about yourselves or pimp projects? I mean, jasonhuff.com, H-O-U-G-H is how you spell my last name. Uh, if, if anyone's interested in the books I've written uh, recently, yeah. I'm wholly uninteresting. There's nothing interesting that you'd need to know about me. <laughs> Brian says just go to google.com. They've got some kind of products yeah. that are interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't like the color of your Gmail button... Come to me. Otherwise, forget it. I have some big problems with my Gmail. Actually, Brian, can we talk later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call me later. We'll fix that right up. Well, thank you guys. Very much appreciate it. So that was uh, Jason Huff, Brian Collins, and Mike Arkin. Thank you again, gents, for taking the time to come and talk about AVP's AVP Extinctions development with us. Hopefully, everybody else out there has enjoyed listening to this episode. And as always, Adam, what do the people need to do if they've enjoyed listening to us? Like and subscribe or leave us a review if you happen to be listening on uh, any of the podcast channels that really helps us out. And so we always do appreciate any feedback you have. And I also wanted to thank Jason, Brian, and Mike for joining us. Uh, It was just such a fun conversation talking to these guys about the game. So thanks again. But if you'd like to find us, you can also find us on our website, avpgalaxy.net. And we're also on all the major social channels such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you haven't already, we did post a retrospective discussion between myself and Adam and uh, Michael, aka Darkness, the founder of AVP Galaxy, which should be out before this uh, this episode's up. If you haven't already, go and uh, go give that a watch or a listen. Although I do wish we'd record the interviews before we do the retrospectives sometime because you get a bit of an insight after the fact that that might change the way you perceive things. Yeah. Gives you some extra context when you might have mm. complaints about the game and the developers are like, well, we also do. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> our say, but I thought both both episodes went really well. So if you have you know any interest or you enjoyed your time playing uh, APP Extinction, definitely recommend you checking those out. And we've also been posting a Let's Play of uh, Aliens vs. Predator Extinction on our YouTube channel. 
I don't know what episode we'll be up to when this interview goes live, but if you're interested in that, go and give that a watch. And that's just Alien vs. Predator Galaxy on YouTube, and it'll be some of the later videos. Thank you once again for listening. This has been Corporal Hicks. And Ridgetop. Signing off. Signing off.